Podcast, another big week chock full of music and stuff. What kind That's what of you stuff? Got? That's what I got. That's what you got. Um, we have a very special guest. I'm very excited to have Lewis Logic with us today. Howdy. Um, he and he brought us our record. Um, I actually saw Lewis play with a bunch of other fine rappers last night. Last night? Was that last night? That was last night. Wow, it feels, today was the longest day ever for me anyway at work um yes last night and it was great uh it was my second time seeing lewis live first time was when he was playing with the troop of nerdcore rappers i saw which i actually wrote an article about um and uh i'll ask you about something else also you also saw um saturday the text day show our good friends wall street players didn't yes you? they performed on saturday at the final show at the full cup they're closing um, which is a local Staten Island venue that they've been performing at for years. The Wall Street Players are friends of ours who perform financial-themed rap music. They're a three-person group. They are hilarious. There's a big market for that. Yeah. <laughs> There's yeah, only one you. market for that. <laughs> and so um, so I saw them, and they were actually followed up by an all-female rap group named uh, Handjob Academy, who are actually quite entertaining. Um, I enjoyed them a lot. That is the best band. That's name pretty up ever. there. Yeah, I, was, yeah, I, so I don't think you good. have to say they were actually quite entertaining. And uh, they actually uh, expressed an interest in in being guests on the podcast in the future. I chatted with them for a bit, um, but uh, I was actually really happy when I saw your performance this weekend as opposed to the first time. You played a lot more songs from previous records. First time I saw you perform, you performed mostly from Look on the Blight Side. Yeah, I had a shorter set, too, Yeah, the first time. And so this time you, I heard some songs from the record before Look on the Blight Side, which I hadn't heard before, and I loved them. They were great. Thank you. Like The Great Divide, I thought it was a great oh, yeah. concept for a song. So that was really great to get to hear. And we'll chat a bit more about that show after our review. But, um, Louis, why don't you tell us a little bit about the, uh, the album and artist you brought to us today? So the album that I brought is two... Uh, uh, what what is that? Two eyes? Is that yeah? Hours? Roman I I yeah I I. Okay, the album that I brought is called I I. <laughs> by Unknown Moral I, I, Orchestra. <laughs> the uh, the best indie pop band with the worst name of all time. Yeah, I'm really dreading like writing this name down in our write up. It's a horrendous title. name. It's yeah. a bad name. At least it could have used a the. You know, it could have yeah, used maybe. the I don't think the indefinite article would have fixed it. It's just a bad name. The indefinite article Look, will just make it sound better when I say two by unknown. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Well, anyway, I, <laughs> listeners, people who are just reading what the reviewed album is going to be on this podcast, be forewarned. The name is misleading. This is a really good record. And so... Um, this is a record that you're actually quite familiar with, that you were a big fan of, that yes. you brought to us. It's a record that I have actually created excuses to talk about. So when you told me that this podcast was about reviewing a record, I was like, 
perfect. <laughs> You're like, excellent. Yeah. To yeah. quote uh, Mr. Burns. So, Any regular listeners, listeners should know that uh, their next hour or maybe an hour and a half should be cleared. Yes, for this right. Well, because considering we can always talk at length, but when our guest is also a huge fan of what they bring, it makes it for an even lengthier conversation. It does. Um, so well, let's jump right into the first track, um, From the Sun. So I, I, would, I will say by the band name... I didn't know what the hell to expect because we had another band that was like symphony or orchestra that you brought that was... Silvermount Zion? The Silvermount Silver Zion, Zion. The Silvermount Zion Memorial Orchestra. Which... Formerly the Silvermount Zion Memorial Orchestra with Tralala Band and Choir. Wow. Someone that was, really needs to regulate like, these band names. No, they went through like five I think that was the topic of the day. Actually. Yeah, that, when we, after that, 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 that review, we talked about insane band name titles. Anybody uh, listening who can... Tell me the entire name of Oingo Boingo. <laughs> Free cigar. Oh, I'm so close. But I... Nah, not today. Yeah, today is it. not the day for that. So From the Sun was a, a great... I thought a, a strong intro track as far as introducing us to a sound that we thought we were going to get. Turns out that the record does jump around a bit, but it's got this kind of... To start, this this very 60s, kind of early Beatles-esque sound... Um, but it had a very kind of bouncy rhythm to it. I'm gonna challenge you a bit there. I don't think this is this necessarily started off as anything that you know fools you in one way or another. The fooling comes later okay. because at this particular stage, I think you know they're they're in a they're in sort of this indie hipster land, believe it or not. I actually detect a little bit of influence from uh, from some modern bands, and come to think of it. I think that's supported through the acoustic versions that were found at the end of this record. One of them actually is Swing Low Magellan, the title track from Dirty Projector's uh, recent album, Swing Low Magellan, that we reviewed back in episode 40. So that's, I think, kind of where they were coming from, at least in the modern perspective. They're sort of in that territory, because they have very, very similar styles. Um, so I'm not surprised that they covered that track. But then... When you listen later in this album, they start dipping back into that late 60s, early 70s territory. And that's, I think, where you kind of end up for a while. I well, think with, that's with fair. interludes. Yeah. But it does have a unif uh, unifying feel to it in that old nostalgia style. And that is, just from the get-go, first track, From the Sun. You're immediately exposed to a very earthy, natural kind of feel in the music. Uh, I likened it to... Overexco uh, overexposed film. It just has that very old school, almost vinyl twang to everything. It's a very dusty record, and I think the popularity of the band came from early demos that the lead singer-songwriter Ruben Nielsen made that were characterized by really dusty <coughs> drum recordings, breakbeat samples, etc., with um, very heavily treated vocals that gave like a really soft fuzz sound to everything. It's a soft fuzz and also really heavy on the high end. Like at the beginning of this, there's really not as much bass going on as does eventually come later. Here, it's very just kind of tinny almost. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. you know, dusty, I think a lot tinny, of I think these words tinny. would... And then there's like a, a bass line that will come in on the song and... Exactly, and even that sounds like it's filtered through like a few things, like it, it was a recording of I'm a recording sure, I'm almost. I'm sure it is. I'm you know? sure it but is. it's a stylistic choice, of course, you know. I'm sure it was very high produced in its own way. It's um, it's made to feel a little bit retro. I feel that Absolutely. kind of in in what they're going for. But I'm going to talk a little bit about the uh, about the music itself here, about the about the about the chordal changes that I think you get right up front here. 
you get these really rapid chord changes in this particular track. Kind of like grab onto something, we're going places, and I really, really like when tracks do that right up front. Sometimes you get these long ambling intro ambling intros, and this really kind of just goes for the throat. So I liked that straight up front. And then you get the verse. Now, that's really where I think the retro 60s thing comes in really, really strong. And that's part because of the vocals, part because of the production value. As I said, it's muted, it's tinny, and it has these really these peaks to it that sort of taper off into this synthetic static. That's how I would describe the production work a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it just backs up pretty much the aesthetic that we are describing, you know? Yeah, well, particularly in the verses there. You know, and that's I like... something you wouldn't get from, like, the guitar intro. Right. The guitar intro is very sweet. It, you could find it anywhere, almost. Like, in, in, modern, in modern culture, I guess. I also like how the singer at this point in in this first track you get that kind of old school vibe but that's also in the tinniness to the vocal recording. Yeah, and the two-part harmony arrangement. Yeah. With the same voice, two layers of the same right, voice. Right, it's him layered twice, right? Yeah. yeah. Which I like that. I like I like when singers layer themselves and do something a little different right. and it's, double it's it up. It's not just double track though. It has um, you know, two two layers that work in harmony together yeah and and outside the percussion like i couldn't really see this song in a very much the rubber soul era of musical production it just has that very old school feel but does still feel updated i I will concede to that steve it uh it's that percussion line that really does seem to be a little more modern than what you would expect it's that and it's also little areas of the of the their melodic work here i'm actually going to highlight a specific a specific moment on this track, in the verse, just toward the end of the verse, as the verse is starting to end, and you get this line, if you need to, you can throw away the only one. It's referring to the sun in the song, of course. And there is, in the, in the melody, you get it sort of scaling down on an E Dorian, sort of on this penultimate chord right here. And then, when they sing that line, they harmonize on F-sharp and C-sharp, which is a fifth, very open, very airy. And then, it's held as an anticipation for the B major root that follows, and it steps in on the following beat. So, it's like, because that C is there, you the C-sharp, excuse me, you get a B, ma- B major ninth. And that's a very, very cool transition, because you get this open, airy feel, and then all of a sudden it thickens out with the root beneath it. Really, really cool. Just like that one moment there, because the rest of the verses are like, you know, you can kind of take or leave it. They're just sort of stuck on the same moving chords. But then it's those anticipations that I really, really like. That's really playing around with what you have. It's a beautiful accent to the rest of the song that really keeps you engaged the whole time. Exactly. I actually heard this song in an Urban Outfitters and Shazammed it. That's how I found the band. <laughs> really? Yes. Really? Modern technology. I, I, I heard it over the speaker system in an Urban Outfitters in New York City. And I think I was mm, in Soho, maybe. And I walked to other music from the Urban Outfitters and bought it. Because I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> That's, okay. that's pretty funny. And we've talked about this before. I could, you know, first of all, this I can like kind the... of see that. I can kind of see that that um, that feel, or at least like in a department store here, because it, it's so soft at this point. This first track is very, very smooth. It's very yeah, it laid is. back. It's gentle. Yeah. Yeah. I well, actually, we... actually commented, I thought it felt like waves of relaxation, especially at that one moment that I described. We've, we've talked of this before, and this is probably one of the best examples of that department music. We've actually... Uh, 
uh, Lewis. We've we've talked about this a couple of times. How we've had a couple of problems with songs, specifically because it feels like it could be playing in Macy's. So it's kind of uh, fortuitous that you actually found it in a department store. Yeah, that's true. And also that it turns out to be a positive in this particular point. Because yeah. like normally I talk about that in a cliche fashion, like oh you're shopping and you're hearing something that is so insanely forgettable. It's just like you actually are more worried about shopping than listening to the music, and that Whereas would be kind of a sad thing. It's Here, a, this a kind is something of song I, that would I, stop you in your tracks. Yeah, exactly. And Shazam it in this case. Yeah. Which I have to say, as someone who now has it, I'm so spoiled that I don't have to know things sometimes. Like that, you can just oh, I hear a thing, Shazam. Oh, that's Shazam. what it is. I prefer Soundhound. Oh, they sa- give, oh, do they, they do the same thing? They got lyrics on it too that are fairly accurate. I really have to look stuff I didn't up. even know there was an alternative to Shazam. No, Maybe. Soundhound. Wow. If, you, if if you're on Verizon, you can get it. I know that for a fact. Huh. Anyway, I have a further thing to plugging. say about this about this track here. Toward the end, you get something very very different. You get an instrumental, sort of a solo that just sort the of drags classic, on for the rest. Classic it, instrumental fade out. You know, it's not so classic when you really consider what's going on. Like later, we get some classic fade outs, but here, this is sort of a very meandering uh, solo. It doesn't really. It doesn't really go anywhere. It actually sounds Does, a little bit it disturbed. The same chord? Yeah, like, over it's, and it's over actually, again at the end. Well, you know what it is. It's on. They had this F pedal, right? And because the whole entire track is in, I mean, the whole. Excuse me. The whole. Um, the home key for this song is B major, right? So then all of a sudden you go to F. You're on the tritone. So it's a really disturbing shift. So all of a sudden, just like hammer down F F F over and over again because it's. You couldn't get any more unrelated from your home key than F, and then the solo that itself. That is a weird thing to do to end the song. Yeah. Like they, it's it's almost as if it's kind of descending into madness, yeah. which kind of the, I could see when you consider the lyrics, and this is where I want to shift gears a little bit. Isolation can put a gun in your hand. It can put a gun in your hand. If you need to, you can get away from the sun. First of all, just the line "isolation can put a gun in your hand." I think I kind of see where the descent into madness is coming from. Yeah, which yeah. is why descent, I really really accept- it's starting there. Yeah, well, it it descends as, you know, it's it's a sudden shift. It's really sudden. Yeah. When you consider that the early part of the song is terribly it's, it's relaxing. Yeah. yeah. That there's just that sudden moment where everything just completely turns. It's not progress, if you understand. Yeah. You know, it's it's just flat out we're here and then we're there. And the whole entire song just, I mean, in this particular case, I accept the uh, the fade out. I accept yeah. that, 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 um... This is probably a fade-out I have little problem with, in fairness. I'm the guy who brought up how much I dislike fade-outs in songs. Yeah, this was a little um, conversation well, we had I don't, I don't really mind it on this song. Oh, you don't have I, mind it? Okay. No, I don't mind it on this song. Typically, I guess the thing that I really hate is band playing full blast with all their instruments, really going for it, and then it just fades out into nothing. I don't like that. Things strip down before the fade happens. And to be fair, song. we do get that later. We are gonna—I yeah. mean—we're gonna get sam- examples of fade outs that do just kind of drift, and it's almost as if they never even existed in the first place. It seems as kind of a—it's um, a cheap shot, yeah, yeah. from a musical perspective. But um, but no, this had had real artistic license, I think. Uh, the only thing that was really strange was that the soloing overhead. You know, you have this tritone pedal going mm. down there at the bottom, and then the soloing overhead is utter gibberish. Yeah. It, I was actually trying to figure this out. It doesn't seem like it's in any key, or if it is, it's a key that's unrelated to the tritone itself. So they're really trying to step away from and where I they think started. That's obvious. I mean, you can hear it even if you're a layperson. It, it's a little disconcerting. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's it very strange. strange. Yeah, you can't identify a melody. The, Usually, like, I didn't have a problem with it, but I thought it was a really weird choice. It was. Yeah. The, um, 
The thing about solos is that usually they're born out of the melody itself. Like, yes, they're imp improvisatory, but they're born out of the melody. They sure. tend to come Treat from it something. as like a head. And then... Yeah. This mm. is, is utterly nothing. Like, you can't follow it at all. Well, it does... It's gibberish. It does speak to the actual content of the actual of the album as a whole. The actual... The, what, what they're going for thematically is a little bit dark. We're not there a little yet. Bit, no, no, no. It's a little bit dark, a little bit depressing, and a little bit just... All around. Oh, you're just talking the overall sense, the yeah. tone, the tone of it. The yeah. tone, okay. not lyrical tone, musical tone, and in composition, it it really does a good job of setting us up for what they're going to explore in this album. Well, that could be argued, in my uh, opinion, only because I think this is a safe point to move on to track number two, yes. "Swim and Sleep Like a Shark," because here we take a bit of a turn. I this this is not so much straddling genres to me as it is immersed in the 60s. Yeah. This is this is straight up almost emulating the kind of stuff that you would get from like the late 60s. Uh, part of it, folk perhaps. Um, folk rock that harkened back to an earlier time, like Renaissance era stuff. There's so much folk out of the late 1960s that love to insert these little melodic lines that borrowed from the kind of thing you would get in like the 1500s. Yeah, really ridiculous. Uh, that's, yeah, I thought that's where you were going with yeah. this. I found that song to be very medieval, melodically speaking. Yeah. And I could almost imagine it happening with harpsichords and stuff like that. Exactly. But the arrangement the, is all you need. At the same time, the vocal work and the lyrical content uh, actually leaves me feeling something like Comfortably Numb by Pink Floyd. Sure, I think that too, but only because he's, he's using the metaphor of the way sharks live to almost describe getting comfortable with just you know that, fading away yeah. dissolving <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it had a bit of a subliminal effect on and you. that speaks to the title which is it at the moment where i said that i really like a lot of the titles in this record because they're very clever and this one swim and sh swim and sleep like a shark and the fact that sharks don't sleep and that they can't stop swimming yeah uh, that idea that i'd fall to the bottom and i'd hide till the end of time in that sweet, cool darkness, asleep and constantly floating away. Yeah. I mean, it, it does. It, it's, I mean, I really am getting a very Floyd vibe going on here. Um, and it's also the way he's singing, his inflection, the higher beat. It almost sounds hopeful and even subtly energetic. And that's another thing that I, that i love from floyd that it's got that high upbeat but it's really talking about deep dark things this combination i mean this is speaking early 70s to me coupled with the i mean the, it, the it's older... really just it's really just tonal style though it's, i mean it's it's a list of things it's the singing style it's the melodic patterns and also that those hypnotically steady drums the like, kind that's that's all that's over the what hooked 60s. me on this song that hypnotic rhythm is what really pulled me in i mean it's no secret to anyone who's been listening to the podcast that i'm a friend a fan of beat work and drum work, but that hypnotic rhythm is what really kind of pulled me in and allowed me to kind of zone out with this sense of swimming and sleeping like a shark. This kind well, of... it went back and forth with me. I guess it fits. It fits the 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 theme of the song. I guess the lyrical theme or the 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 theme that was presented right there in the title itself. Yeah. But um, you know, I, I go back and forth with those those steady drums because when you add up all of these factors, it it felt like it was so immersed in the 60s that it didn't offer anything new to the table and it's the only only area where the song kind of struggled for me yeah, see, so yeah. it sounds like an imitation of a 60s song exactly yeah. like more like hey we're we're a we're an emulation band or we are a 
cover how would you describe it like some other circumstances that we've had like we had a, a band back in episode nine the young veins where they decided to do an album that was in the surf rock style they were writing original tunes it wasn't covers or anything but they were they decided we're going to be a surf rock band now surf rock is kind of dead like you don't really find that anywhere today but they did a new album of surf rock and it kind of worked so there's nothing inherently bad about that. It's just that no, it's just that it, it's sort of a departure from the previous song where I was getting a little more variety. You know, a little bit new, a little bit old. I it was characterize this next comment as entirely related, but I did actually make an entire surf record that was surf, really? surf, Balkan music, and hip hop fused into one thing, and it worked surprisingly well. I'm very interested to yeah, hear this. Don't worry, I'll, I'll make sure that you, later. that you get like to hear Like Californian surf? Yeah, like very, very 60s when you say rocky. Balkan, like, like I'm Eastern thinking, European I'm Balkan thinking Beirut? Stuff. Yes. Um, a lot of, right a lot of really, here? yeah. Because yeah. I love Beirut, which means I'm probably going to love this. A lot of really Balkan horn arrangements, um, and even some of the piano work. Um, it's a very cool project. It was called Spork Kills, like a spoon fork. Oh, that's kind of awesome. That's a very important yeah. plug right now. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not saying that sarcastically in the slightest. Um, but the thing about this song also is, while you were a little disenchanted by the fact that it kind of felt like an imitation, th- things that replicate a good thing, I'm okay with. It's not obviously mind-blowing in that sense but i'm inclined no, to far agree be it from like <laughs> if it's a th- if it's emulating a thing that i like well i like that thing so i like this thing far yeah. be it from me to attack that since yeah. I, I think in both of the cases where we had this those were my picks i chose yeah. the young veins yeah. because i liked the you know i want i thought it would be food for thought like yeah. hey look this is a a band that's deciding to do so, uh decided deciding to do an experiment i appreciate that uh, same went with Os Mutantes, and yeah. that was just recently, episode 79, with Full Metal Jack, which is like a modern album where they were going back to their old-school Brazilian psychedelic rock from the 60s and the 70s. Yeah. It was a similar kind of thing. It works for some people, it doesn't work for others, but it's still a cool experiment. Yeah. Um, moving on to So Good at Being in Trouble. So this song, I mean... Bass. Yeah, like this is where you really get a good sense of like the bassist and what he can do, and he he really he does, does lead. He does good. He really, I, I think he's carrying that. Yeah, song. yeah, he leads this song, and I like. I it was like my the, first note. <laughs> yeah, I really like the. I think we're all in agreement that the bass work was fantastic in this track, and it really led the song. And I also, really enjoyed the guitar. I really enjoyed the. Well, way they the doubled. Guitar. They doubled quite a bit. And it was it was a full one. accent work, and this is where I feel like the guitar is there. And but at times it's it's while it's a part of the song, a lot of times it's going to actually feel a lot, very separate from the actual uh, uh, music that's going on there. And I like that 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 back and forth that it's it's doing in these songs in this music. Well, there's a funny thing here. I mean, first I'm just going to mention something about style again because we've been starting off with style here because mm-hmm. it seems important to sort of place where the band is at this point. Um, and at this point, it seems like they're sort of in a Motown kind of fashion and that's because of the bass the bass really wasn't very uh dominant i think in the first two songs but it really stands out here which is why we're all noticing it so and they're going towards something motown so again they're kind of in the right area even if they're not in the same genre they're in the we're in the right chronology of time here late 60s early 70s um even maybe an early soul uh, less so than than, than i found the vocals to have gone there in in a way on this track too that that they hadn't on others and um and I have actually something to, to note about the vocals here, because there was, um, there was a pattern that I really want to identify. It starts off a little bit safe, quarterly, 
you have a major chord, it's off to a relative minor, and then to a fifth. That's kind of standard so far. And then it goes to a fourth and starts climbing upwards back toward the one. Oh, yeah, but with the separated. Yeah, yeah. That's right. It's separated, though, where the vocals are, are third up from the bass at the root. And with the bass and the root, you know, they're just climbing together. And then where the bass makes it to the one, the vocals don't quite do it. It's like the vocals are defeatist. They actually go back. And it's this really, really sweet moment in this verse. I'll identify it lyrically here. It's now that you've gone. It's been a long, lonely time. It's been a long, sad, lonely time. Rolling along, I'm in a strange state of mind. It's a strange old state of mind. I think it's when they drag out that final yeah. note right there. It's this. It's that defeatist moment in their melodies, which we get a few it, other it places really in this album. It is really interesting, is even when I sing along to yeah. that song, yeah. I never sing the notes that he does for that oh, yeah. last phrase. Really? Yeah, because they seem almost um, uh, like... Counterintuitive, yeah, maybe? Yeah, it's yeah, counterintuitive. It's, it's like, that's not what you're supposed to do there. Exactly. And, and I, I, I can never actually sing this, the melodic line <laughs> the same way he does. Every single time. On the way here, yeah. I was reviewing the record while I was driving here. Yeah. Because I knew we were going to talk about it. And I was singing along and I was like, again, again, I never <laughs> get that last note, ever. It's tricky. I mean, you know, it's hard to, to sing something when you know that it's, it's contextually phrased by the support of other instruments behind it. Like, the, the bass beneath it is really what puts that in context. So alone, you know, when you're just singing it, it, it seems to kind of fall flat. But that's, that's it's really creative when they intertwine yeah. that in their music. I, I thought it was a really cool yeah. moment. It's just my instincts don't go to that place. Yeah, it I know. was a strange choice. Yeah, and it's the strange choices in these melodies that I really prefer to highlight because I think that's that's their strong suit. When they occur, it's I like this chilling style, moment. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I do. Well, I, I like... It's... it's, it's um. Each of these songs is starting to, to do something for me, and that is, I'm getting a, a very clear picture being formed here of how this music seems to be coming about, at least in my mind, and it, it they're being presented as kind of cold, pretty deep, but mostly just as thoughts. None of these words being said, and none of the ways that they're being sung really seem like they're going to be statements. They're not, you know lyrics that are supposed to be belted out in an arena or anything like that these are very deep personal thoughts the sort of stuff introspective I believe yeah, is the yeah you're it's almost for. like well, what's happening what in your head your contemplating. that's what I was going for yeah. they, they seem very contemplative very not just memory driven but a very heavy thought process I can support that in Especially, the music as we go on from here because once we leave the verses we go into this sort of this very short bridge um which, you know, it kind of does seem introspective. It doesn't belt it out in the same way. You don't quite get those same moments this time around. Um, it's, the lines is, uh, Memories, they mess with my mind, who am I to deny? And very quickly after that, it moves directly into the chorus, which actually has a very, very similar style to the bridge. So it's she almost was? as if you don't quite feel yeah. any departure there. So it's almost from here, the song does seem to kind of get into itself. Well, it's also it's not really reaching out in any like I could define that moment kind of way as I did in the beginning. It's also that repetition of uh, she was so good at being in trouble, so good at being in trouble, uh, ten times, and it was it spiraled, it spiraled, and it ended with so bad at being in love, that that just cemented the idea for me, and that made me look back on the previous two songs and go, yeah, these are really just straight up thought process pieces. These are really just like deep, dark corners of the mind that he's starting to explore here. 
Sometimes he's very out with it. There are moments where I, I, I'm very invested emotionally in the melodies themselves, and there's times where it seems to drift. I still would argue that the times that it drifts, that's the stylistic choice, speaking yes. to what you just yeah. said, that that's the, the introspection coming there. Um, but, you know, the only thing about this track, it did repeat the whole entire process over again. So it was kind of like, all right, we have that, that process from the verse to the bridge to the chorus, and then we get the whole entire thing again. And then it kind of ends with this very weird exotic indian sounding outro did anybody remember that yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. it was uh, a it was another it was interesting pretty, choice but, yeah, yeah yeah it seems like this band very much likes to while they they fall into some tropes during the songs the ends and the beginnings they try and go somewhere different I, that's yeah. lo- that's nice it's and, like a, a trail into the wrong cave yeah <laughs> i love and it. It, it it's and like you said when we were listening to it pre-show that it almost seems like they wrote these songs and then kind of created an intro or an outro after yeah. the fact and put it yeah, on like it. they're like what's going to take us to the next and piece we've yeah. had issues with that with other pieces a lot in other albums but in this case i, I like them a it's lot interesting more. it's an they interesting work, thing they work to do well. before i end up not saying it and we move to the next song i did notice when i first started listening to this band that so good at being in trouble was the most played song when you dig through their youtube or spotify and i think it's it's one of the safer and more quickly digestible songs on the record even though i like it it's uh, a lot of times when a song is like that, that's the one I like the least on the record, and they choose it as the single, etc. I don't know which song was actually sold as a single, but um, this is a, a song that sounded like perhaps something you would have chosen in an album of songs that don't really sound like singles. Yeah, yeah. Um, it it seems like the kind of a band that tries safer. to avoid having that mark about them. Sure, but I would agree that it did sound. Not necessarily the safest, but it definitely had that kind of accessibility. Yeah, it's definitely more accessible than a lot of the other songs. Well, I would the, the speed of the song, like the tempo of it, the uh, the fact that you could interpret it just at least on the surface as a love song. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. and so it it seems like a good choice for a single. And usually, I don't like those songs, but I yeah. still like this one. It does annoy me that it's the most played one on the album. Yeah. Because I like other songs a lot more on the record. Me too. And I feel like the people who are listening to that song are overlooking the greatness of the others. Right. And mm-hmm. speaking of songs that I like better than this one, the next one is actually one of those songs. <laughs> Brilliant segue. Yeah, man. no, Brilliant. take me there. Yeah, no. Uh, one, one at a time um, is... The intro alone on this song kind of just kind of hooks me from the beginning. It just kind of pulls you in and... Again, it was so much less safe than the previous track, and yet well, it's this interesting. Is, this is where we go into those... another. Excuse me, but this is where we go into another facet of late '60s, early '70s, and this is full-on psychedelic rock. Yeah, this time Woodstock, around. say Foxy Lady, which was the immediate thing that came to mind. Yeah, here. and, and it had I hear that. Feel. It had Absolutely. that. It really does uh, remind me of that a bit. It was that funk attitude infused in uh, rock setting that yeah. really just com- it, it's doing a a big uh, shift from the more I guess melodramatic tones of the previous songs. Yeah. This one has its own version of drama going on here. Now, I will say, like, speaking to what I said in track one, this is a case where it, it's sort of a modern take, modern impression on what to do with psychedelic rock. Yeah, and you get the, a sense of that, and I think that's what's so intriguing about it and what pulls you into it. I think we should take a moment to realize that we're four tracks into an album that each track has been in a different style. 
which is yeah. really cool, especially seeing as how it, it's still a fairly cohesive album sonically. Not even, I yeah. think they know their era, but they don't know yeah. what they are in that era. Yeah, I think yeah. That's I'm, what I'm, what I'm yeah, happy that, that they don't know what they are in that era yeah. because they're not just churning out ten songs of the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's always interesting to hear a band jump from place to place and this song even within itself jumps around quite a bit and i think again that's one of the more interesting facets of it that it doesn't just settle in one place it kind of jumps around i have my moment to point out here the opening verse of the here of this track it really packs a punch in my opinion yes. that's that's really i think what grabbed us all and it sort of cries out much like a chorus would even though it's a verse uh it has the power that a chorus would by singing these notes across wider intervals. In this case, it's just the E minor triad going from, you know, B down to G down to E and then back up again. And it's really belted, almost kind of swooning in a way. And I really, really love that stuff. But it also holds the last word, breeze. And here's the lyrics. I'm only floating on the breeze. Sweet dreams are falling from the trees. And just take the last words of these lines on breeze. It holds it on an A. So instead of... Yeah, they step away from the triad, the triad, too. right? Everything is in E minor for a while, and then they they hold that A, which creates this sus four chord, which is a little more, you know, a little more depth there, a little more introspective. But what I really, really like, and I'm gonna jump ahead here only to explain this point, because we get this verse three t different times, and the second time the verse comes, there's a lot more complexity in there. It seems like like everything is just thickened out a bit. And instead, this time, when it falls on the A, it seems like the other instruments beneath it are filling in the other notes to create a full-fledged 11th chord. And that was really, really cool. So we get a little bit more in that second verse. And then finally, in the third verse, granted I'm skipping the choruses for the purpose of this point, but when we get to the third verse, this time we also have that 11th chord filled out, but we also have other instruments comping overhead. This is where you get that guitar, guitar solo, that, the yeah, saxophone yeah, yeah. solo also, very that cool. horn stuff going on. And that on. very... That's it's, cool. It's uh, preceded with that very... We're still arguing what kind of a breakdown that is. Uh, oh, yeah. I, say, I, I heard of those Beatles. Yeah. I heard yeah, punk. I, I very much heard it sounding... I heard it as punk, and that's actually why I paused here, because I like these verses so much better than the than the choruses themselves. It was it was the drawback of everything except for that really heavy electronic note and the vocals uh, that I just... I have to see it as a very punkish style. And see, it's that drropback that makes me relate more to the Beatles, because the Beatles did a lot of that yeah, kind of and, and focus on the, the vocals, the drop back everything else. Thing again. Yeah. So we're split down the middle here, huh? Yeah. I mean, no consensus on this? No. Oh, well. And in either case, you we, we admit it was kind of a, a departure in a way. Yeah, I, I see this as a like, I think, from what was happening in the song. Yeah, it's at least not psychedelic. No. Right? You'll yeah. It, no, it. yeah. No, it's not psychedelic. Definitely not. I think the verses really hold that genre, and then the choruses simply don't. There, There's something there's something to belt. That's what I was alluding to when I said it jumps around, because it does keep going back and forth between these things, gotcha. building on the verse, but then going back to that other sound, be it Beatles or punk, in the chorus. And at the same time, it's still perpetuating that whole memory-delving, cold feeling. I'm only lonely through the night. I'm sweating, fretting through the fight, uh, flight. I'm out of sight. I'm crying. I'm flying like a kite, one at a time out of sight. It's back. It's forth. It's obviously depressing you know the time really full of energy i love the the contrast that's being developed here um or just like the first verse i'm only floating on the breeze uh sweet dreams are falling from the trees i mean it's got a lot of conflict going on here 
and the ideas it's setting up there really I find the psychedelic to really work well with this sort of manic depression that's going on here in the lyrics I could buy that yeah you know, the, I think the only thing I'm missing out of this is just the fact that I, I, I wanted more phrasing of those of those verses. I, I, I don't know, there was something about just sort of stepping away to yell, you know, one at a time, one at a time, one at a time, over and over again, that, that I just, I wasn't quite feeling. I feel like it didn't reach its climax in a way like the verses kept trying to reach climaxes that the choruses would never live up to. Just a personal observation. Otherwise, I love the framework of this song really quite a lot. I understand the concept for that. And it's more like uh, we're going. I'm going to be using the memory metaphor a lot, but it's sort of receding back into the dream world that you're living in. That's your. That's your. That's um, my. That's my excuse. thematic justification. For that's it. my thematic justification. Uh, okay, right, gotcha. I enjoyed it as a rest from the very, very heavy breakbeat drum arrangement in the song. So for me, it was it was nice to pull things back a little bit and then bring the breakbeat back in. You like the chorus? It's a very drum heavy song. Yeah, that's true. I, I, you know, I, it's funny though. I, I barely was focused on it. I feel like I, that was a situation where the melodies were just sort of whisking me away, and I wasn't. I was kind of forgetting that the drums were even there. A charmingly chosen break too, which doesn't hurt. Yeah. yeah there you go. So you'll put up with it no matter how loud it is because it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's a great break. Yeah, and it's an interesting arrangement for the song, which is, I think what intrigued all of us, regardless of what we did and didn't like about it. It clearly did engage all of us. I think we came at this from a variety of angles. I'm satisfied. (laughs) Good. All right. What's Um, next on the list? The Opposite of Afternoon. So this is another title that I really love just for the title. The Opposite of Afternoon. What, what, you know, what's the opposite of afternoon? In this case, it feels like a stoner jam. Yeah. 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 I mean, I I get that. Oh, that's exactly what I got from this. And to be honest, not positively. Not positively at all. Uh, In this particular case. Billy sounding guitar riff. That's a little bit distracting, but I do love. I do love that real, that real empty feeling that this thing does. The the really drawn out, vaporous kind of a sound that is going on here. That to me is just a pinnacle stoner ideal. Well, let me and let me say my piece to before before we uh, before we move on to this into the finer points. But this, at least on my first listen here, especially on my first listen, this was just a bit of a hole for me because it it, it had me really question uh, where they were genre wise. I know we've been going back and forth on this, and in in the end, it's really not that important as to where they are. It's just how good it is as to you know after after they've chosen what they've chosen. But um, it, it was a little bit it was a little bit weak here because they were so stuck in the past it seemed, and I don't know stoner jams they go back and forth to me. If you're if you're in like a Grateful Dead scenario and you're really really into jam bands, you just want to you know do that for 15 minutes straight. Well, great. But this honestly had me feeling like I was in a VW wagon, stoned off my hide, contemplating existence, and all I really got out of it was munchies. <laughs> That's a very vivid picture you're painting i mean for me unfortunately five was the start of a two-track kind of downslope before popping back up yeah lol because five and six i really didn't like five the opposite of afternoon my biggest problem was the points that john likes about it being a stoner jam are exactly why i didn't like it and i agree with steve like i i have my fair share of stoner jams that i enjoy and and the 
jamming out stuff, but I felt this one just kept left me confused, wandering. And, no, yeah, I get the appeal because I want like, and hungry for more. I want the other things that go with it. I want yeah. the revelations and the introspective, yeah. you know, space time. Whoa, you know, but you yeah. don't get any of that here. It, it just Here's feels like they stripped away the substance that I do enjoy about the song. This is another one that has very medieval sounding melodic lines in the the singing it did and, it and, definitely did it's and, got and amazing in the first part, lyrics yeah, yeah the amazing lyrics are really lyrics. cool very poetic so, you and i are on the same page with that uh the other thing is um in the intro of the song the melodic line and the lyrics are presented more stripped down and acoustic and i really enjoyed that part more than the fully fleshed out built up song that had the hillbilly guitar riff in it. I almost feel like if they would have tried this song with a different production style, I might have actually really liked it. So yeah. Maybe yeah. the choices that they made in production for this song were not my cup of tea. And the vocals were actually a little bit weak because the lyrics themselves are really inspiring for me. Open eyes in the gardens of sight. It's all right. Only when you crawl in the dirt. Frozen invitations to a solvent gloom tonight. I gotta argue something that's here. Pretty. It's that's pretty. It's very pretty. Gorgeous. It's very pretty. Granted, granted. But, but the terrible that, presentation. That's the, they're yeah, not promoted. Like I, I can't, it's, I can't it, really focus on that. This is mid level. This is when a lot of the stuff is getting in the way. This is when a lot of the instrumentation is getting in the way of the vocal work. Well, it's not even just the instrumentation. It's how it's sung. I mean, we've 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 said when it comes to English and singing and any kind of vocalization that it's not always what you say it's how you say it no matter what you're saying if how you say it isn't engaging or entertaining or or even with the right melody or purpose it kind of gets lost and that's what i think really happened here is the lyrics are beautiful but how he sings it just doesn't get me here i just kind of got bored i feel i just got four minutes of the ambling nature yeah. of the melody and it just I don't know, <coughs> it's something that it's something that felt Weak by comparison to what we've had so far. Yeah. They didn't. There was no none of those aha moments, you know, that really make it a memorable hook to me personally. Granted, great poetry here, but then we got one big thing at the end of this track. Major shift. It's almost a completely separate thing. It's an outro that essentially, as we get the outro of the song itself, it's just abruptly interrupted. By ambient music mm -hmm. all of a sudden you just get this ambient drone which almost felt like a microphone was placed in an old construction lot with just these metallic tones like the sound of wind vibrating against something industrial and the backdrop is just ambient city noises like cars could be there but nothing is really highlighted no it sounds like a cluster of sounds but nothing distinct but I liked it. No, I did too. Well, this talks. This, this talks back. I to, loved it. This talks back to what we were saying earlier that they like to drop in these intros and outros that seem somewhat disconnected. But well, I argue that here it was very disconnected. But it, it, it fortuitously for me, which, who likes this kind of stuff, I, I ended up enjoying this this outro more than I did the song. I don't. I really don't think they had any any marriage at this particular point no. later i could cite them definitely later in this album i could cite like connections where you know they use their their electronic uh electronica prowess in with these in this with this late 60s sound but here i i couldn't justify it no it's just it's it, it's like lewis said earlier it's, these are moments where it feels like they just wrote something separate and put it on the end here's your moment john prove me wrong on the lyrics is there any r reason in these lyrics why why <laughs> This should have just been so abruptly interrupted. It would have been so much better if it had just been a poem. Yeah. That's what Ooh. I'm really down to. The lyrics are the best part of this, but it's a poem. 
That's I it. still like the medieval melody. I think it's a yeah. cool melodic line. It's just I don't really like the production of the song. Yeah. You know, but, if this was my record, if I was the producer, I would have been like, Can we try this a different way besides like hillbilly funk guitar? Come <laughs> well on, that's man. that's what I'm speaking. A poem and this is very much a a, a free form kind of a piece works well with that sort of a line with a very literally old, old, old school kind of a feel because it, it, it the marriage is there. The problem was everything else. Right, which I think we, we've pretty much made very clear. Um, Whatever. The end is awesome. <laughs> well, okay. Ending aside, ending aside... Um, no need for a leader, track six. Yeah, so this one is... I mean, I think we're all on board that the, the, drum, the drum and guitar work in this was very cliche, very textbook yeah. of the time period they're trying to emulate, and was... Not very engaging Riffs at all. That sound the, like I've heard them before on yeah. the records. That's not the a worst bunch. part. That's not even the worst part. What's the worst part? The worst part is this. Once again, we're getting really nice poetry lyrics that one don't fit the album very well, and two are so overproduced in the vocals, so yeah. overexposed that you lose everything that would have been pretty in the song. That's not the worst part to me. The worst part to me is the same exact problem that we had on. The last track, only here, it's putting the good stuff in the beginning, yeah. and then we get the yeah, the boring stuff. I think they did here, that here. We get another electronic piece, another like it's probably one of the most artistic parts of the album is this beginning here, where you get this. Well, it's not the most artistic part. Actually, I could cite another one later, but here you get this sort of grating sound of phasing and and ringing that you know it's it's harsh to listen to, but. It's still interesting. It shows that they really do have prowess when it comes to uh, electronic work, which you wouldn't expect so far, but they do. And then it just fades into bass somehow. Yeah. It, yeah. The, the transition is yeah, very... Yeah, and then you hear the drum track just fade in exactly slowly. which i didn't notice like, on that's, a first that's listen. you said something Louis. you said you said that, that you had imagined them like writing these songs first these like sort of older old-fashioned melodies and then deciding okay we need something to kind of tie this all together we need something to to add transitions and outros and intros and what well, let's use that electronic stuff we do also <laughs> yeah it's like they added that and supplemented here because again it's something i just could not find uh, a um a link yeah, I don't really think well, there is one. Yeah, um, intros and outros work best if it has kind of ta- uh, connection with the other stuff. But the fact we've that- got a lot of bands that have had this same problem, and it's becoming repetitive with these issues. I mean, at this point with this song, the, my biggest problem is yeah, is the cliche guitar like I feel like I've heard before, and that that fading of the drums I didn't even notice on a first listen, but when Lewis pointed it out when we were listening the second time. That's when I really heard it. The fact that it was almost like they had the separate tracks playing and they just turned the volume up on the drums as the song started. It just was bizarre and and felt very amateur. Uh, I don't know why I pronounced that way, but amateur. It felt very amateur. Amateur, yeah. (laughs) Amateur. French or something. Well, it also, like, I read the lyrics as we were going along with this. It starts off with, Something wicked this way comes. We don't like to fall, but when we come down, we lose it all. This became a call to arms. This is really breaking up the theme work that I've been har- uh, harping on in the previous tracks. I mean, it's a little disappointing that way. Because in context, separately, the lyrics are really good. I just don't find them... They, they have certainly a play. They, they weren't the rest of the record. Exactly. Yeah. They were not very issue. melodic in this track. And that's, I yeah. think, what my problem was. Because up till now, we've had some pretty standoutish melodies. I agree and, and completely. This, yeah. This was um, just lackluster in that department. I can't explain why. Um, it almost found, sounded like spoken word over a soundbite, in a way. 
which maybe didn't fit yeah. this medium no. so much. And, and even still, it's not even spoken word over soundbite because there was guitar and drums and other stuff left and right. It just was very boring. Well, and, no, and, actually, and, and you have a bass riff that yeah. repeats almost endlessly. Yeah. It's like that's yeah, a sample that's of a soundbite, and it's really, really heavy on the cymbals also to sort of create this grumble beneath yeah. it. And that is really, really steady. That never really goes away. So you're almost like kind of fooled into thinking there's more going on than it really is. Well, this whole song reeks of repetition and, and not entertaining repetition at that. Yeah, and I this think is the one song fun. I would take off the album if I could. Yeah. Powerful. I, I don't know <laughs> that I would listen to it. But well, this, is the, this is another case where I noted it would, it's, it would maybe be a good framework for a jam band atmosphere, but it doesn't, sure. it doesn't fit. But it didn't fit on this record at all, yeah. Yeah. But, but... But now we have, after it, track seven, which is Monkey. We get my favorite track. Monkey with yeah. an I. Should be noted. I love Yeah, M-O-N-K-I. instead of an E-Y, yeah. it's M-O-N-K-I. So, so this, I mean, to start off, we get some of that beautiful electronic work. Yes, I misspoke last track. This is the moment that is the most artistic part of the album for me. This is the moment. And I agree with that because it blends the spacey intro with other things they've been this doing. This comes later. This yeah. is integrated yeah. in a way. But I gotta just say something about this intro here because what it was doing was very, very unique in my opinion. It was using the echo effect to form this rhythmic envelope for these sort of des- disparate pitches. They were all over the place and they would come from multiple sources. Come from predominantly the guitar. But a lot of times you would hear other things like, uh, like I think they were using like a high-pitched drum and then tweaking it and bending it and then you would hear it echoed again and it would just create this pitter-patter. So that's pitter-pattered against the guitar. It seems to be almost random, but the echo kind of makes it rhythmic because of how it's, it's echoed. Yeah. And that was really, really cool. It's, it's different for this album, but it did really fit this track because it was eerie. It kind of went back to that same industrial thing that we got uh, at, in that other ambient section in the yeah. outro of the, the other song. But then here, it's, it's, it, it fits the eeriness of this entire track. Yeah, and I think so too. Yeah, later we get this bass. Once that sort of is, has run its course, the bass steps in and sort of takes that that dirge to a new level and it tied together with that little fill that little yeah. drum fill yeah exactly it's the, the drum beat work that i really like to help hold it all together and on top of all of this is my favorite vocals i love the way he's singing this song because of the true level of creep that's going into yeah. his words and it's my favorite lines it starts with my favorite line on the whole album he wants to give her everything she wants all of the sins in her mind, all of her enemies fallen and crying, all of the teardrops on her tongue. I love that. I <laughs> love that. That it, is some, some of his strongest. That lyrics. is some the heavy really wordplay cool. right there. That's great, just wordsmithing right here. Well, it's a great example. This track of how it all really comes together. You know, the the clear things that they've been doing in parts of other songs and parts of the other album really come together here. And, you know, it's really highlighted by what what I was teasing about and that Steve was talking to a bit also is that great intro that we love comes in again later in the middle of the track, but this time they're mixing it with 
everything else they've been using and blends this song to make it even something else. Right, they use it as an interlude. They use it while it comps, you know, they, in any number of capacities. Yeah. It feels very, very integrated. And the yeah. thing about this song also is it's the longest track on the record. It's over seven minutes, but it feels so much shorter than track six because you're entertained and engaged the entire track where it felt like track six was never going to end. It's a really gloomy song, too, to yeah. be so entertaining. I think they yeah. pulled off a bit of magic with this one. Yeah, yeah. I, I love it's the... As, as as Matt said, that space in between the notes and the guitar work, coupled with a really, a fairly fast uh, percussion and bass line that really kept everything flowing. Uh, you because know, that's you a funny had thing. That, it's funny thing you say fast, considering that I consider this whole entire... No, no, I, consider, I do consider this whole song to be very slow and ambling, but then that bass... You're right, it actually, the bass itself, when you consider the, how fast it's strumming, it is actually strumming fast, but it's staying on the same note almost half the time. And that's why it's able to kind of keep that dirge going. Yeah, and, and everything just follows along what the percussion and the bass are doing. And there's no catching up, there's no falling behind. Everything really feels to, to be placed where they should be. Every chord, every note. The timing on this song is what makes it feel so short, regardless of its actual length. It fools you into that. The drawn vocals, all the, all the way the, the length of notes are, are designed here... Just keep everything from becoming stale. I think it's because, especially considering how they started, I think they had they had a way of sort of making this track feel very cosmically isolated. Yeah, you know. They, well, like that's I what said, you get out of the sound bites um, in in the early portion of the song, and that's kind of what the bass is able to to somehow uh, emulate itself. Um, I mean, if I was to be a little bit nitpicky, I would. St- to probably have preferred a little bit more of the electronic that we got in the beginning. I mean, granted, it is it is integrated. I, I just still think that maybe the eeriness somewhat tapered off for me a little bit with the um the sort of central portion uh driven by the bass and whatnot. It's it's to the like it's just a slight degree, not to anywhere like what I cited earlier. But um I think I am starting to notice that I like their electronic work perhaps better than or at least it's a hidden talent. I think at this point. It, it's not it's not prevalent on this album, considering it seems to be used to tie everything together. It's a peppering. Like, yeah, but just, I, I think it's strong, bit. and that's very rare. Usually the kind of... Usually people pepper things that they're not terribly confident that would hold their own. Sure. Though well, though it could be I said... Think it, this could. But it could be said that it sounds so confident because it's only peppered. That's fair. That's well, fair. But that's that's this is all conjecture. Yes. Well, yeah. no, that's not complete conjecture because we do get a healthy heaving in the next track. You're right. Yes. You're right. Before we we go oh. there, I just wanted to point out the one thing um, with the 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 length of this particular song that does drag a little bit for me, even though it's one of my favorite songs of the album, is that the chorus happens twice each time it happens. Yeah. So the choruses are longer than the verses, really. Which is a little bit of a weird choice. It's for me. almost like a two-part chorus because there's like a pre-chorus that has more content, a post-chorus that is longer than the pre-chorus. It's hard to really explain it because the chorus. Yeah, really that is that pre-chorus long. is yeah. my favorite melodic part of the song. Mm. But then it's monkey over and over. Yeah, and, and the double. I love it. I really do love it. I love the kind of spiraling nature of it. Yeah. You know, it's funny because that seems like such a 60s thing to do itself. It's also just pick a random thing. Monkey, monkey over and over again. Monkey, she wanted you. Monkey, she wanted you. That's the kind of line. And well, that's her that, No, that's the kind that's of line. Her. I know, I know. But that's the kind of line that feels like it would come from the Beatles. That sounds like a Paul McCartney slash Lennon line. And yeah. so far, we're just like identifying musical things that would come from the Beatles. Well, but that really does sound. It's, uh, um, what's it called? I'm the walrus. Choo, choo, 
Choo, choo, choo, oompa, oompa. Kind of repetition to eh, it. that might be a not little as, distracting. Not as strong. <laughs> no, no, but it has that sort of keep doing the same thing over and over again. I like that. You know, if you want something that relates to the Beatles, uh, it's, I think it's the bass here. This actually sounds McCartney-influenced. Yeah. Um, I mean... Which I, I'm okay with. I, no, I'm I, very okay with. I agree with Lewis. I think the doubling of the chorus, though, was a little much. I mean, it doesn't ruin the song by any No, not for me but... either. But I was expecting the verse to come back in, and yeah. when the chorus happened again, I was like, oh, 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 oh we're not done with that yet. Okay. okay. Fine, sure. <laughs> well, they have... the. Honestly, there's no respect to any sort of verse, chorus. Pre, These guys are pretty pre, kooky. From, yeah, they from don't track care. To track. Oh, they are. They don't kooky. care. Their chorus could be two words in some cases. They don't yeah. care. Yeah. I'm okay with. No, that. I'm. I'm definitely okay with that. It was just this particular choice for me. I was like, I could have stood the monkey chorus one time. Yeah. I didn't need it twice because yeah. I was really enjoying the verses, especially when they would get to that little pre-chorus B part in the verses. Uh, that with, with that one line, it's in the stars, the musical yeah. notes. Like, I love that section that leads into the monkey chorus, and I would I'd rather have more of that than the the monkey part. Different perspectives, and I will just put one period at the end of the sentence here, just as far as what I stated before. I I will admit I'm approaching this with a bit of a with a bit of a catch twenty two, because when I said that about the bass, like the bass probably is one of the strongest, the grooviest parts of the song. And I think maybe yeah. this is the part you're talking about with the um. With that uh, was the pre-chorus, or the chorus you were mentioning. The pre-chorus. The pre-chorus. I think yeah, I think that is the probably one of the more groovier portions. I think that's probably one of the strongest parts of this. Even though I also like the electronic part, so it's like mm-hmm. you can't have you know. I think one supports the other. I think yeah. I was gonna know. say this song so is like, very tied together. Yeah. So you like kind of everything. I well, as opposed to one thing. Well, this is just I a like good the two different things in different ways, and I dislike them in different ways. It's I'm I'm very fickle with this. Song. I think they're firing, you know, on all cylinders on this song because their electronic stuff is shining through, and the style that they're establishing from song to song is at its strongest here. It feel, yeah, I feels like they're at their most integrated. Like maybe this is a step in in their you know musical. Yeah, I'm career. curious. Yeah, very to, curious to hear where what they, they do with the next record. Yeah. And uh, speaking from that, so we Dawn. have track eight. This yeah, is what Dawn. John was getting at before, and I'm very glad he pointed it out because actually this does this very much does prove that they can do an entire piece with that electronica style. It, I would have said another great introduction. I actually was expecting by this point that this this um I didn't look at the track length when I first uh, listened to this. I didn't realize it was such a sort of a short one shot, but I would have expected that to be an introduction, and then it was gonna you know go into its uh into its 60s stuff, but it didn't. It was the whole entire track. Well, it is all... It's sort of an intro to track 9. It, 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 this is designed to break up track 7 and track 9 because if they hadn't, it would have been a strange transition. You definitely. needed a transition piece here to keep this record flowing, and Dawn was definitely a beautiful way to do it. I, I agree completely. This immediately brought Boards of Canada, which is a compliment. Is anybody who's heard me speak of this band before? Um, Episode the, 54. One of my... <laughs> One of my favorite pieces that Steve ever brought on the show. Um, electronic oscillation and phasing and everything that I loved about boards, especially the very early part of that album, uh, was right here. But only for a minute and a half. Not even. It was a minute and eight seconds. What I like about this track, though, is that how concise it is. It's very much serving a very specific pers- purpose. It's a palate cleanser. It's, it is. It's yeah. taking you from one track to the next, but going, here's something pretty, enjoy, and then here we go. I think it was deeper than that, though. I don't think I just got, like, pretty, enjoy. This was a very dark, isolated track. Well, I didn't say this joy. Say... I just said pretty. Oh, fair enough. 
but yeah, all right, there's prettiness in isolation. I think. Yes. And and I think that's why it's really important to compare this to Boards of Canada because there was a very isolated feel to that album as well. Um, specifically, we're talking about Tomorrow's Harvest because Boards of Canada have, has done other work. But um, it's also the era again. This yeah. time, this time, uh, unknown mortal orchestra here was able to throw their electronica back to the same era where their other stuff has been, and that's what really intrigued me. They were using tones, synth tones, the kind of stuff that you would get out of 70s electronica, the kind of stuff that Vangelis used to write back in the 70s, and believe me, when we did Boards of Canada, I was endlessly talking about Vangelis, because he's kind of the forefather of modern electronica in many ways, or at least the darker the darker side of it. So probably the uh, the ambient portion and all that other stuff. But the thing is, earlier on this album, they felt so modern. Like, with the um, the outro uh, at the end of... I forget the track uh, right off the top of my head, but the outro that was ambient and sounded like it was in a construction lot, that yeah. sounds like the kind of thing that feels timeless. It feels like it could be anywhere. But this is really, really honing a time period. So it seems like they were trying to sort of get their get their story straight maybe i don't know it just it felt very connecting for the for the two tracks and it really was a great way to bring us into track nine faded in the morning um which was a much faster paced song after you know kind of grew, slow grooving to monkey this got us kind of back into rocking and mm-hmm. and, and i really like where this song goes i think it's a me too a great funk kind of funky psychedelic rock track that kind of brings you back up to speed and gets you going again. I'm going to be a curmudgeon here, but I just needed to be coaxed out of the previous track a little bit. When I was thrown right back to this, I did feel a little bit robbed of, mm. of some degree of... It's I, an I didn't want... shift, yeah. yeah. but I do think it was smart to not go from Monkey directly into Faded in the Morning. True. Um, maybe just in style, Dawn, just in the imagery that's being uh, uh, shown in Dawn and Faded Into Morning by the title names. It's, you know, oh, yeah. things are waking up, your alarm clock hits. It's That's kind of cool. Yeah. yeah the, the, I, the I title wouldn't have even did, yeah. made that, that connection, but oh, that's I'm good cool. with metaphors. I'm real good with metaphors. <laughs> either, you will make either the best or the and worst. or the worst metaphors you will ever hear. And it'll be the same metaphor. <laughs> And speaking of metaphors, uh, lyrically, I really like the way this song starts. Words are floating through the windows, and in the house she blows them away, faded in the morning time. Oh, that's it. Paints a very interesting and pretty picture. And the introspective is back. Everything is there that I've been I've been loving about this album. This had one of my favorite melodies um, in the album. One of, because I've already cited several others, but. This here, I felt more emotionally invested in. Um, this is after we get through, you know, the 60s stuff from the earlier point, which I'm just kind of lumping into a uh, into a box here because it's almost like I take that for granted at this point in the album. But once we get through that and we really cut to the melody, which is the the emotional core of this track, it's it when he when they fall on faded in the morning time, that that just it threw me because it's it's another one of those defeatists ends of phrases the kind like we got earlier on it ends on sevenths you know something that's a little bit more complex than just the melody itself it ends on ninths it's odd that i like these really defeatist endings so much but it think i think that's really the emotional core of this track and it's also because of the way he sings it he belts it really really belts out that faded in the morning time and i feel like there's a almost a wail there like some of those vocal high pitches were really kind of chilling he almost quivers on it a little bit. 
as he says, faded in the morning time. It goes up. It's like a parabolic arc. Well, that defeatist stuff is throughout throughout the entire record. And I mean, even looking at their name, Unknown Mortal Orchestra, like there's a lot of defeatist mentality throughout this record, you know, and a lot of not that's only why just I appreciate style. when they just go for the you know go for the throat with it like yeah. if that's what they you know if that's what their emotional center is i i think that's why this that's where this album is is at its um is at its best it's where it's able to uh make you remember it that's what the kind of stuff that i was actually singing to myself later after i listened to this that's the kind of stuff i had in my head throughout the week was those melodies right <laughs> which, which were defeatist i know that's sad and kind of depressing but that's that's where they went with it, and that's what what stuck. Yeah, I don't need all my art to cheer me up. Yeah. I actually hey. really enjoy stuff like that. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's a certain comfort in the company of it. Yeah. yeah. Um, Lo- misery loves company, that's the line. Yeah. Uh, I also thought it was an interesting choice to have verses that were so short leading into the chorus. So it's almost like instead of just being uh, you know, a verse and then a chorus, the chorus is a bit of a response to the verse, like call and response style because the verses are only a few lines long like that very few words even it's the, the pro, yeah the um the pattern is basically just sing two lines of verse your third line is essentially your chorus yeah. and that's always faded in the morning time yeah. which gets you every single it's time it's a cool yeah. arrangement it is i really dig that cool. it keeps the song moving for sure it really yeah. does it makes the the time just you know fly I almost didn't want the time to fly because I was loving that so much. So. Yeah, yeah. That, that's my favorite of the more upbeat and funky songs on the record. Yeah, and I, I noticed um, even just in, the, in that repetition there of that final line, because we get so much faded in the morning time, there's, there is a redundancy there, but it's not in a distasteful way. I, yeah. I like that it's redundant mm. because that's where the emotional center is. Um, moving on from, from track nine to track 10 the final track um this is secret extens no i'm kidding so it's secret <laughs> christians but like uh, christmas with xmas it's the first half half of christians is with an x just read it so <laughs> secret christians is the final track i think it's good it's, he's explaining it i heard the song and was singing along singing the line secret christians are so lame and still didn't realize when i read the title that it, it said Christians. I was like, Exgens? What the hell is an Exgen? Yeah, I wasn't saying for Matt to just read it. I'm, I'm presuming that the, that the, uh, the listeners will the have, the word, out, yeah. Yeah. They'll have yeah. the word in front of them. See, look, it's an X, and then there's a T and an I. <laughs> um, so, so this is the final track on the record, and, and I know Steve's going to disagree with me on this, but I really like... I don't, I don't love this track more than any of the other tracks in the album. I thought this was in the vein of the more average tracks on the record, but... I like where it goes to kind of wrap up the track. I felt like thematically this kind of takes the record into a spiral that kind of closes it Musically, yeah, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Lyrically, it's kind of like No Need for a Leader where I don't see how it fits within the framework of the album. It it doesn't have that mental mental hitch in it that so much of the rest of the album has. It doesn't have that contemplative nature that so much of the rest of the album has because it really, at times, just doesn't make any any sense. I don't know what he's trying to get at. Are you talking about the lyrics? Or I'm talking the... about the lyrics. The lyrics. There's a very odd lyrical work in here, odder than what we've had um, earlier on this album. I'm going to hide from the rain. I am tired of running. Well, that's consistent so far. That's very consistent with sure. what we've had. Yes. Round while these nuns eat my grain. 
ransacking wolf-packing rats in a cult of pain in a cult of fame so lame it's just it's bizarre yeah these lyrics are very strange i want to know why the nuns are eating the grain i'm usually like better than this and i can like try to you know come up oh well that's clearly you know a metaphor no, they, yeah. metaphor in this odd. track is a stretch don't be grumpy and cold. Oh, no, there gotta be an answer if you want to i can burn up a hole in this coal i don't get the symbolism yeah, I and don't that's really, hard for me. I don't really get the lyrics of this song either, and I'm a lyrics guy. And that's really disappointing. This song worked on me based on the music. Sonic Charm. Oh, yeah. yeah. I it, love the guitar. Yeah, it came from the same place, I think, that the main body of From the Sun came from after that really pretty acoustic intro. It has a very similar sound yeah. um, to Secret Christians, and I, that's my favorite style of theirs, actually. So I really love this song, but lyrically it's by far the weakest. By far. Now that's funny because actually I, I don't know musically I was I was back and forth with it. I actually to me to my ears it felt like more that was in the same vein as some of the earlier tracks. It didn't feel like anything dramatic about it. There I isn't. Kind of, it's just charming. Yeah. yeah. Well, all we're saying is that it. Sometimes... Actually, yeah, I think it's the charming. It was too. It, it was cheeriness in its charming qualities, well, and still... I think it was too cheery for me at the end of this. Album. It wasn't too cheery. It wasn't that cheery. I was not that cheery. By contrast. But, but by contrast. It's almost... It's pretty cheery compared to a lot of the yeah. other stuff. Yeah, but it's not cheery as in, hi, happy, nice to meet you. But it's, that's not what they're no, saying. No, no. It's, no, that's a just irrelevant the, point. It's, actual it's manic. Instrumental uh, I, I would have it more manic than cheery. That's just not what I heard in the music at yeah, all. Yeah, it felt it very is. much You're in the vein of the of You're the all alone on this one, John. But, I mean... I try. I mean, but that, I think that's why I liked it as a close, because it was just unexplainably charming, and it, that's kind of what pulled me in, really more than anything else as far as a yeah. final track. In the in the melodic lines, I enjoyed too, even though the lyrics I'm not crazy about. And uh, I don't know, it's it's something about it reminds me a little bit of a Sly and the Family Stone song or something. I can hear that. <laughs> and, I could absolutely I, I hear that. that, sure. Interesting. Also, there's something else that you mentioned, um, how the the end of this track is just nah 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 yeah the third is, verse know, yeah he didn't even bother writing lyrics for it and i think he exactly. was just like this shit is charming man. exactly i, I, I didn't even notice this. you like this i know you do <laughs> i didn't notice until you pointed out that it is almost the same exact it's the same melody uh, yeah as what he had sung right. but, it's, yeah. but it's just done with nah nah with nahs instead of <laughs> yeah. words and you know that's well, good for them. <laughs> that's all i could say and then, good uh, for you that you wrote a song you felt so good about you were like I can just do the third verse with sounds. Exactly. <laughs> and then there's the true ending, which is actually just a fade-out solo. Yeah. And the solo was another one of those kind of meander, which I feel like was a little bit of a throwback because it was almost like the first track uh, where we had that departure to the tritone and it was this very bizarre ending that didn't seem to have any format whatsoever. The solos were just all over the place. No scale, yeah. no nothing. Just, you know, have at it. And then the end of this almost kind of went there. Not, But a little more constrained a little more organized almost as if the I think album that had... sounds a little medieval like the end of yeah. so the end soloing oh i actually didn't notice that and we'll go back and look at yeah it. Get that I, I peak. it sounds like a little bit like medieval music and then it has that little rolled chord at the end of running that's right i remember that yeah it just seemed like it was um tying up the album in a way that was how to put this um against the grain no pun intended, because he mentioned grains for some reason. Right. We we are all in agreement against their that own grain. We don't really think 
the song is about anything in particular. <laughs> All right. At least nothing that know. we can discern yeah. from what's in it lyrically. Who are these secret Christians? I don't Why know. Why are they secret? I, I like that phrase, secret Christians. They I just don't been persecuted since Roman times. I don't right. understand this any really, of the rest of the lyrics. It's really funny considering that not but a couple episodes ago we had an album which was a, a, a technically a Christian rock album which was really all about the problems that 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 band has with Christianity and and how he wishes like it could be what he wants it to be in a way. And I I'm wondering that whether everything. that yeah. is is what's <laughs> going everything on here. To be the way I want it to be. There you yes, go. There you go. So I don't know. Maybe there's a little bit of that in here. That's kind of what I get out of the word secret Christians. Anyway, I was just talking about the music in the episode. So what happens next? So we Now we do our now? little wrap-ups. We're going to do a wrap-up. I think Steve's going to take us off. No, uh, no, 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 no. Steve always goes That's first. That's right. You've been, you've been pushing think, me up front I think lately. Matt should go first. Oh, right. should. Because it's been a long time coming. No, I, I went first like two weeks ago. Shush. Anyway, um, so, I mean, this album, I really didn't know what to expect. Because, again, when you see Unknown Mortal Orchestra, well, for one, it says orchestra, so I initially thought, hey, it might be an orchestra. Nope. Um, <laughs> you know, it's not. It's, it's, it's indie pop, rock, rock and roll. It's, it's an amalgamation of stuff. Which Silverman was, Zion wasn't an orchestra. No, either. Yes. No, it wasn't. No. No, it wasn't. <laughs> they pretended to be. Come on. They had moments. Yeah. Um, but, but, yeah, I mean, all in all, I really liked the record. I, I liked that... This reminds me of something I was talking to another band that I'd seen over the weekend um, uh, the other day. So I, before I went to see Lewis's show, there was a band playing at a local bar near where my apartment is called Jacks of Kings County. And they play straight up rock and roll, which is something you don't really hear anymore. And I actually told the band members who I'm friends with that. That's why I appreciate them as a band so much is because they play straight up rock and roll. And you don't really hear a lot of that. And what was nice about this is that there were a lot of moments of straight up rock and roll. But they did other things with it. They didn't just leave it at that, which is good, too. Even though I enjoy straight-up rock and roll, I like that they did something a little more with it. Um, I didn't have as many nitpicking issues as Steve did, but I'm also not nearly as nitpicky as Steve is. Fair. Very fair. So I think that that'll reflect it. Yeah. But, but I mean, I love... You know, the only songs I really, really didn't like were 5 and 6. And it's not even because they were bad songs it was that case where they're okay but i really didn't like them because they didn't really do anything or do anything for me um so all in all i really did enjoy the record um it's not their job to do things for you matt they're not your slaves they could be <laughs> i don't know i love interrupting your monologue i'm so sorry i know you do and you get That's me off my train of thought which drives me nuts um my favorite track though is hands down probably either Monkey or One at a Time. Those those are the two big standout ones for me. I mean, the whole tail end of the record, I really like where it goes from 7 to 10. Um, and considering, you know, the two-song lull, but the end and the beginning being very strong for me, um, this, this album sits pretty for me at a solid 4. And the reason for it being a solid 4 for me is because I didn't really connect with it that emotionally, even though there was definitely a lot of emotion in it. I more enjoyed it just because I enjoyed it, not because I really connected on an emotional level. There were moments where I did. Definitely Dawn uh, brought up a lot of emotion. Definitely Monkey also took me on a kind of a ride. 
But all in all, I didn't really find a huge emotional connection to the record. So it's it's pretty at a nice solid four for me. I think it's it's a really great record, and I, I'm curious to see what they do in their next record because they're hint at things here that I feel like they could do a lot more with, especially with... So- I want more of songs like Monkey, essentially, is what I'm saying. I because like, I really like where that song goes. Yeah, I would love an album of Monkey. Um, just from a lyrical standpoint, That is that was just pure gorgeous words coming out there. And it's that coupled with the very nostalgia feel to it, the very pick and choose from all these sort of musical bands that I grew up with. We said Beatles a lot. We said Floyd. We said all these groups I was overexposed to growing up. And that's where I'm really making my emotional connection here. It's not really that heavily in the songs themselves. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. So it's, association it's, to things. Yeah, that it's that nostalgia as emotion as opposed okay. to just that's really cool. identifying. Yeah. Um, I didn't think of that. Which is a huge plus for me because I have not heard new classic rock. Well, not new. <laughs> um, but that's also a, a little bit of a detractor. It's not really new. Everything is just not rehashes or anything like that. They make it their own. This is very... This does have a lot of unique little tidbits here and there, but it is a very old-school sound that's not just... It, it's not fully updated. It's They didn't own it. They didn't, you know, try to reinvent the wheel. I'm not saying you, you have to, but something like that is what really puts it in, you know, upper fours, five area. At the same time, I love the theme. I love the theme. There's a couple of, of, you know, fallen away points lyrically, but all said and done, I really it really boils down to rational madness. Everything here is just that very deep, dark, subconscious level of your mind lyrically, and even sung that way as sort of your conscious trying to reach your your subconscious trying to reach your waking mind. But it's very much the matter-factual way. I love that combination of, of that serene kind of uh, dis, uh, discorded idea in the lyrics and the vocal work. It's, it's beautiful for that. It's with you know, music I love. So this is, this is a four and a quarter. This is a four, two, five. This is a really, really fun album to listen to. Well, fun for you to listen to, but not necessarily a fun album. I don't know if you're capitalizing that word or not. Because <laughs> if you're capitalizing that word, I might hit you. But no, this is really, it is. I, I will attest that this is a actual fun album. Just because of uh, the guitar. The yeah. bass and the guitar. No, it's definitely entertaining. It's definitely an entertaining yeah, record. guitar work is excellent. And I love the strength of the bass. I don't know. This album is a, a real big Catch-22 for me. It's, it's in a way, it succeeds because it's all over the place but that's only by virtue of maybe perhaps letting someone get bored if they were in just one of those different facets of genre-wise i mean look at all the genres we've just spat out tonight i'm not saying that you know someone's gonna listen to this album and be like i have no idea where to put this no it has a pretty clear place because you know modern alt really borrows from just about everything and i think that's really just what this is is all so i mean that's why I made that Dirty Projectors reference early on, is because they were alt, and they kind of borrow from places too. And yet, interestingly, they're hailed as wildly unique. I mean, that's pretty crazy, but that's just how influences work. Uh, 
I, I would probably argue that this album would suffer a little bit, though. That they would still fall in alt, at least in a professional uh, capacity. As far as, like, no one's going to, you know, pause to think, where am I going to put this? But then once you listen to it, you're like, eh, you know, I could throw it in that pile. Or throw it in that pile. In that way, it's not so unique. There are unique moments. And that's what I talked about at length here. That's what the kind of stuff I like to decipher. But I needed them a little bit more fluidly on this album, I think. I think there's melodies here that are really, really beautiful, but then in some places they lack context, and then where they have context, they may lack the melody. It just seems like something is missing as you go through this album. You could identify something that perhaps could have been done a little bit better. They were really, really going hard at one thing before um, uh, something else stepped in to sort of drag their consciousness in a different direction. It's like they got distracted or something. That's kind of a harsh way to put it, because at the same time, there's still a lot of beauty in this album. There's a lot of beauty in their sadness, beauty in their defeatism, as I said. That's kind of something that really doesn't get spoken about a lot in music. I mean, well, sadness it does, but not defeatism. Defeatism is a very, very bold thing, and I think the, uh, the pain of that defeatism is felt in their lyrics and in several of their melodies. That's really where I would like to, um, to hone my my um my focus on this album but i i simply can't because i am being thrown around in different places this doesn't quite make it to a four for me i think this is a, a another three i'm gonna give it a three eight i know it's a, a very specific decimal yet again but you pulled it up last week and now We're it doesn't alive. really matter at this stage we make our own rules here a three eight basically just to say i wanted more unity in this album there there as from a track by track perspective i had a very hard time with arc i think these tracks could have been shuffled and, you know, no one really would really have noticed. I, um, and then there was also the fact of genres. You, there's, a few, there's a few tracks in this album that you could have taken and thrown back into. Uh, you could have put them on a 45 and then dropped them, like, in an old pile. And no one would have ever noticed that they were actually out of time. Well, I think that that speaks to, and I just looked it up so I could get the right word, the low fidelity of the actual album. The lo-fi nature of everything. The kind of it's a definite choice. It's yeah. a production choice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and it's it's that that I really think is the most unifying factor of the sound Agreed as a whole. Completely. Yeah, I, like I, I and I agree with you there. It is unifying in terms of the sound for, for me, but it, it's production sometimes can go it sometimes carries a little bit weakly. Sometimes. I mean there's other things that go into it more than production for me. So that's one element which almost seems like just a little bit of a cheap shot. Like that, that superimposition, you know, after the fact. Let's superimpose these electronic things because we need some tie-in. It feels... Something in this album feels like it was not from the core. But otherwise, I really like the direction they're headed. That's pretty much it. It's your turn, Lewis. I don't we are, we are on zero to anyone that I like this record. Yeah. <laughs> I'm the one who brought it here. Um, This was one of my favorite finds of the last year or so. I've spent a lot of time with this album. I happen to really enjoy how each song recalls a different piece of the 60s or 70s, stylistically, genre-wise. I love Ruben Nielsen's guitar work. I love how he spends the majority of his vocal time um, in falsetto, uh, which is no easy thing to do, especially if you plan to play these songs out live. 
I have not yet had the pleasure of seeing the band in person live, uh, but I have watched some clips out of curiosity as to whether or not he could hold up the guitar work and the singing live, and it looks like that's the case. Um, excited to try to check them out live for the first time. With regard to the studio album, there are a few moments that I don't really like on the record. I think we're mostly in agreement that track five and six are lulls. Um, I do like the song The Opposite of Afternoon and parts of it very much. The thing that annoyed me about it was that that country-sounding guitar riff. It reminded me of like Leonard Skinner or something. And I didn't like that part of it. If I could just mute that one track out, hmm. that song would would sit well next to the other ones for me. Um, no Need for a Leader, I would have totally cut off the album if it were up to me. All in all, I love short albums. I love records that are you know, 10, 11 songs, like an old 60s, 70s pop record. And for me, the veneer that they pass the songs through making everything dusty and fuzzy using a lot of breakbeats and what have you really worked on me as a unifying effect for the the songs despite the fact that they're hopping around between different genre styles from those time periods um i like them most when they're doing stuff that's a little beatles ish um or as i said i i found a little bit of a sly in the family stone sound maybe in secret christians um those are my favorite moments on their record, but the song that I think is the strongest is is uh, probably Monkey, um, and so we were all kind of in agreement on that. For me, this record, um, it's certainly not a flawless record. I, I would have a hard time giving any record a five. I don't like to score things to begin with, but since that's part of the, the podcast and I have to do it, I'm, I'm probably in agreement on like a four and a quarter, um, which I think is a really... That's an admirable achievement. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. I like anything. Anything over a four is just a good album. For yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I just, it's a great record, and, and I think it held up well. Even on, high on threes have, have, have stuff to gain. Yeah, you always yeah, take totally. away something. With I am excited to see where these guys go with their next record. Um, I don't know if, if uh, in your poking around before this podcast you saw anything about the band or whatever, but uh, apparently they were an entirely different band called the Mint Chicks. Some members aren't present anymore, um, but the band is comprised of folks from both Portland, Oregon area and New Zealand. Yeah, I saw it's, a lot of it's that. Kind of a strange connection. And this is yeah. actually their the their uh, sophomore album too. Yes, they've uh, only been under this band name for like four years now. Yeah, so they've only labored under the worst band name ever in <laughs> juxtaposition like no 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 to a no, very I very like great sound i like you can be wrong it's unknown fine. mortal orchestra i okay. hate it it's it's terrible name i, I don't wish... like having to tell people i'm showing the record that that's what it's called that's how negatively i feel you're gonna scoff it. and you're gonna have yeah to and then really i'm gonna have to sell the them issue. on it yeah yeah i wish they no. had a cool band name to go with their really cool records not even everybody... the first album uh which is uh an eponymous record <laughs> Uh, I bet you some confidence. The known immortal orchestra, huh? Yeah. No, I wish the, they. The I want to just get away immortal. completely from the orchestra thing. Yeah. You said uh, they're referred to as UMO. I kind of wish they were referred to as unknown. I would love if they were just called unknown. I would that take would be, that. That would be. I would awesome. take that, that be, to the bank. That's that a great name cool. yeah. to go with their record. Yeah. It so would maybe they'll hear this podcast. Maybe those indie name. And ever. they'll change and, their and, name. And they'll drop the mortal and the orchestra from the whole. Or at least affair. orchestra, unknown mortal. You can work with that. 
I feel like I guessed Suzanne Pike. Would I think be it's like clunky. I'll take Unknown. She That's probably good. would. Yeah. Unknown, it's real concise. It's simple. I wish that was their band name. It would be so much easier for me to turn people on to uh, two albums that I feel very strongly about, that I think are very strong. You should go back and listen to uh, the first titles. record. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really good. It, it stands up next to this one, and you can actually hear what they learned. You know, on, oh, cool. on the second album. Well, there you go, unknown, unknown mortal orchestra. You're somewhere in the four reigns after I do the math and average this up, but your name is a zero. Um, oh, sorry, <laughs> it's a terrible. Overall, name. though, <laughs> I think on a burn it, listen to it by its scale. Definitely listen to it. I, you shouldn't miss this record. There's something in it I feel for everybody. I'd buy it. I, I would buy I'm it. straight up buy it. Yeah, yeah I would if say buy it. If you're a rock fan, that's I think true. You'll find something this is true. There's if enough you like good, consistent records in terms of quality level. This is a record worth buying. It's Eight out of the, the ten songs five. are like, wow, yeah. that's great. I will yeah. concede. You're right. I will concede. It's <laughs> worth buying. You gave it a four. It's got to be I a did. five. No, you're right. It is worth buying. Um, it, it's got a little bit of everything. And I feel like it'd be, you'd be hard-pressed to find nothing that you like on it. I agree with that. And yeah. I yeah. think you know if you end up listening to the first record, you'll find that the band is very consistent. And so this is the kind of band that you want to get comfortable with because... I'm anticipating that whatever they follow up I I with I think it's just called two but uh, whatever they follow <laughs> two up with um, I'm anticipating that it'll be a strong record and that you'll see growth and we'll definitely look to see if they bring out a new record we'll bring you back I can't and we'll wait, do man. it we'll, we'll aye, do aye, it aye. again yeah so I want to thank you for bringing us the record Lewis certainly um, uh, speaking of great band names and great artist names, we have Lewis Logic, who now we will talk a little bit about him. God, um, I hate my rap name. Do Why? you? Yeah. Well, really? Guess what? Because that's the first question. Where did you get it? Where did Lewis Logic come from? Oh boy, um, and, and this is such an unexciting story. <laughs> I admired Red Man's given name, Reggie Noble, and always thought, "Why don't you just use that? That's an awesome name, man." Yeah. Reggie Noble. Reggie Noble is just a went solid with your, name. Yeah, with your government name, and I wanted to come up with something that sounded like it could have actually been my real name, had my real name in it, so that way I wouldn't have to suffer through the awkwardness of people calling me by some stage name that I don't really feel like is me. Right. And inevitably, what happens when I go out to shows when I'm on tour or whatever, people come up to me and they're like, "Yo, Logic, I hate that." But, it happens. Every I almost night. called you Louis Lodge. Yeah, I get Lodge too. What an awkward really? way that's to shorten my name. Weird. Yo, Lodge. I don't know if you say Louis Lodge, that kind of has a nice. Uh, that that's I guess a little better. I, yeah, <laughs> that's I, right. I, I stuck the name Louis into my rap name so that people could just call me by my given name. And I, you know. yeah, but are they really going to call a rapper Lou? A lot of people call me Lou. Really? Yeah, a yeah. lot of people do. Yesterday, the show, a lot of people called that's around. That's right. Uh, to be fair, that's a more interesting story than our last ra- uh, guest rapper's story of his original name. Hops, Hops had a worse story, so don't yeah. worry. Yeah, okay. Don't well, worry. I, of I, our two rappers in the show, you're, you're, you're first. I was trying to <laughs> think of something that could sound like it was actually my last name. I liked alliteration at the time probably more than I should have. <laughs> and Hey, we're Crash Chords, so I'm all for alliteration. Yeah. Um, the only L word that I could think of that wasn't a negative thing <laughs> was, was logic. logic. I, kept, I was like, Lewis lethargic, lazy. They were all just synonyms for me not being very ambitious. And I decided <laughs> on logic because it was the one that I thought of that um, was a, a positive thing. But, the, you know, oddly enough, without me planning it, the name became a bit of a misnomer, like a fat guy named Tiny or a bald guy named Curly because I was making these records that were... <laughs> 
just insane comedy and parody of the darkest parts of your life um often very shocking and even offensive in the beginning of my career and so journalists and people who would write about my my efforts would point out how there was very little in the thinking of the character that I would play on record that was logical and and it gave the name a little bit more depth I think the irony is actually a pretty interesting story and I'm going to try to make this quick but do either of you remember what Hops's former name was? Yes, Digifunk Digifunk and finally his roommate just said how about Hops? So and that was his story. So, needless to say, okay, my story is better than that. Yes. There you go. <laughs> um, so, I, I wanted to ask, of course, how you got your start. How early did you start singing hip hop, writing hip hop? The first time I tried to write a rhyme, I was seventeen, and I grew up in an all-white neighborhood, very Italian neighborhood on Long Island. I was adopted when I was three months old by an Italian family, mm. and you know, my house was all classic rock and uh, metal and my mom listened to Neil Diamond and Barry Manilow and Sinatra and stuff and Air Supply oh wow so I, I did not grow up on black music in any kind of way um, I remember the first black friend that I ever made because the neighborhood was so Italian and Polish um, was another skateboarder so I, I skateboarded for a very huge part of my life like 11 years i was actually a pro skater for two years oh wow um and i made friends with this kid charlie from a neighbor a neighboring town um and he was half black and half korean and he he was really into hip-hop and he rapped and he skateboarded and i think out of loneliness because he had nobody to freestyle and rap with he just kept nudging me in the direction (laughs) and eventually i i really took to the hip-hop thing um, and even though I had been a break dancer when I was younger, um, and the first records that I actually ever owned that were mine, not my older brothers, were rap records. Uh, it was UTFO's Roxanne, Roxanne, Nucleus Jam on it, and a Fat Boys record. Those were my first. Uh, I was like 10 or 11. I was never really a, a rap music fan necessarily. I was more of a break dancing fan than a rap music fan back mm-hmm. then. Um, and then having grown up on classic rock, metal, and punk, and what have you, I, I went right back to that stuff. And in skateboarding, there was no connection between those things at that time. Yeah. Um, so Charlie introduced me to um, Tribe Called Quest and De La Soul and uh, all the native tongue artists, and I loved the music. I was so into it. And he kept pushing me to, to rap with him, and, and I, I eventually started doing it, but I had never heard myself before. So I thought that I was fine. I was doing well. I, I wrote a few rhymes or whatever. I would deliver my written rhymes with him. I would try to freestyle with him. And then he he got really interested in actually trying to become a professional rapper. And so he he got studio time through favors, exchange for favors and whatever. And an original track that some producer made and... Um, he was like, we have to rehearse before we go to the studio because we only have like two hours and it's really expensive. So you have to be able to nail your verse like right away. And we did boombox, like play and record recordings. <laughs> so wow. one, boombox was, one boombox was playing the, the beat off a cassette tape and the other one was recording with the, the onboard mic. Dare I say, I, that's ghetto. Yeah, <laughs> it, it was. As suburban as we were, that was a very ghetto way to do things. 
I kind um, of I kind of sympathize though because it's very tough when you're on the clock there, you know, at, at studios. I I have no idea how you know people are able to really get their their um their their stuff together like within that short amount of time. You just yeah, have to be yeah. totally prepared for an early musician. That's really challenging. Totally, and we didn't know whether or not we'd ever get a chance to go back into a studio. We didn't have any money. I was yeah. seventeen. <laughs> I worked at Baskin Robbins, and I, I spent all the money that I did make on the gas that I needed to get it from. The neighborhood where I lived to the neighborhood where I went to high school because I was using a fake address to go to a better school. Um, anyway, um, I heard my voice recorded back for the first time, and I was so mortified I vowed to never rap again. Oh wow! Because I hated it, and I I sounded like exactly what I was like a, a suburban, like white neighborhood guy, and back then there was no. There was no model for that. That didn't exist. Yeah. Mm. The only way, the only rap voice that was acceptable was one that sounded like an urban black guy voice. Yeah, I'm um, borderline asking you to give away your age here, but what year? Oh was no, this? I don't. Just mind. So I have some prime. I, I actually, I'm really proud of my age. I'm gonna turn forty this year. Hey, nice. Wow, Thanks. I would have never yeah. guessed. Right. I thought you were closer to my so age. What, so what year Thank does you. that place this? Um, uh, this. So time? that would have been ninety two. Okay, yeah, that's... Um, I was in, like, 11th definitely grade. Definitely before that framework existed. Um, yeah, and so... Platform, I mean. Yeah, th- there was really no example of a rapper who rapped with a, a naturally white-sounding suburban voice. Now that's really common. Um, yeah. But but that, that wasn't a thing back then. And so when I heard my voice back, I was like, oh, my God, I just learned that I can never be a rapper. And I was heartbroken. <laughs> and I went back into my skateboarding career really seriously and I ended up getting a pro sponsorship. I skated for Chapman for like two years and then um, I went to college and um, Penn State University where I went to school was the first place I had ever been that had a really, well, not in ratio, but um, a large population of black and Latino people, people of color. And that was the first place I ever got to be around other people of color and really try to connect with my ethnic background and this is an audio podcast so it should be said it's at this point that you're black right yeah <laughs> well i'm half i'm half puerto rican and half black right. um anyway i um i realized very quickly that skateboarding was not cool in the black community <laughs> and Aww. i yeah and i had been fighting with the team manager founder of the company Chappie because he gave a pro model to this kid that was really young, which was a very hip thing to do at the time. And I thought that I was as good or better a skater than him, so I was mad that he gave him a pro model and not me. And I had a temper tantrum, and I quit the team. And I started freestyling again um, while listening to uh, the early hieroglyphics records. Um, So the first round of hiero records... uh, Dell's No Need for Alarm, Casuals, Fear Itself, Souls of Mischiefs, 93 Till Infinity. And um, I found maybe a year or two after it had come out, the Far Side, Bizarre Ride to the Far Side album. And it became my favorite rap record, which it still is. Um, and those artists made hip-hop records about things that were not terribly urban. And they seemed like skater kids. And I was like, wow, man, there's a place for me in this. Now I just have to cultivate a voice that sounds appropriate. And I set out learning to talk and act like I thought 
black guys talked and asked from what I learned from TV and rap records. So I essentially, and I hate this word. Listeners, don't use this word. I'm sure you've heard it. I became a black guy who is actually kind of like what people say when they say the word wigger about white guys yeah. who want to be black guys. Mm. Because even though I was actually a black guy, I was raised very, very white. And so I taught myself how to sound like what I thought black people sounded like from watching TV and listening to rap records. And my mom hated it. <laughs> and I mean, there's even, there's recorded evidence of this. There's a, it's such an embarrassing moment for me. But you know what? I, I feel like it's it's a good moment to share because humility is an important part of having a public persona and being a um, professional musician, um, having like a cult fame like I have. Uh, it keeps you from turning into an obnoxious jerk. <laughs> and so I encourage you to go find this embarrassing moment in my recording history. I was on the Stretch and Bobito show after Stretch Armstrong left, um, and it was just called the CM Familam Show with Bobito. And if you listen to, at the end of a little collection that I made called uh, Music to Drink By, that collected all my, uh, my 12-inch vinyl only singles and... Um, guest appearance songs and what have you uh, at the end of it my radio show appearance on the CM Family M show it's like the last track on this CD um, you can hear me answering questions and making banter with Bob Vito on the show doing my best urban black guy dialect oh, and wow. it's so embarrassing man I listen back I feel to like, it now I feel like this is the most uh, meta textual uh, instance to use the word passing yeah yeah wow <laughs> Yeah, think about that. <laughs> um, and so it took a while for me to mature and come to realize that you don't have to do that to be a black guy. You, you just are one or you aren't. And I started talking the way I actually talk and dressing the way I dress and not worrying about whether or not I looked or sounded like a rapper is supposed to sound. Um, and that was the part of my career where I became comfortable and you proved it I, I had arrived at who i was that, that, that's how i got into rap man it was a clumsy clunky journey but you made it yeah and, I, and i'm glad that i followed that path because I, I think it gave me a little bit of character and heart i didn't just show up fully formed and i had to go through a lot of embarrassing goofy stuff to get to where I am. Well, and I listen to a lot of hip-hop, and I find that the hip-hop I connect more to is hip-hop with character. Rappers who who are more than just lyrics and rhymes, but actually have a heart behind what they rap about, you know? Me too. I can't even listen to people who don't have that at this point. You also prove that skater kids transcend race and time. <laughs> <laughs> Which they do. I, one of my biggest regrets is not learning to skateboard. <laughs> totally missed out on that 90s thing i do have a question it's on the lighter side and um that is uh what is the drunken dragon oh boy that's a nickname that vinnie paz from jedi mind tricks gave me that guy is in part responsible for my career ever taking off to the point where i could make a living off of records and having a a national and international career um a mutual friend named el fudge who was on raucous at the time, Guest appeared on a song for me after hearing one of my songs over the telephone while he was being interviewed on student radio at Penn State. Wow, wow. My buddy who was running the show, Mike Jacks, allowed a mutual friend, this kid, Shanti, who was just kind of a 
overconfident social climbing tiny little Indian guy um, he kind of forced his way onto Mike Jax's show just by showing up all the time and being like you need help you need help and next thing you know he was on the air talking and stuff <laughs> he was one of those guys um, he was talking to El Fudge during the break uh, while they were playing songs over the air off air and uh, told him that I had made a song and that it was really good and El Fudge should hear it and he played it for him over the phone and Fudge said wow that is really good um, I would totally do a song with that guy it would probably help him for his career and stuff and Shanti was like how would you do that you, uh, you're you in Washington Heights in New York and we're in Penn State and he was like well you could come get me and Shanti was like when and he was like I don't know whenever Shanti was like how about now and Fudge was like, you're going to come get me right now. And he was like, yep. And they ended the show early, and they drove right to New York. It was, I don't know, midnight, maybe, when they left. They got back to Penn yeah. State at like 8.30, 9 in the morning. I was sleeping at, <laughs> at my house at the time, and we didn't lock our doors back then. Uh, Penn State is, you know, in a fairly rural area, and it's a little bit hippie-ish. And uh, I woke up. And Shanti and El Fudge and I don't know if Mike Jax was actually there, but at least those two were standing over my bed. And I was lying there next to my then-girlfriend under the covers and my boxers. And I looked up and was like, who the fuck are you and why are you in my house? And he was like, I'm El Fudge. And I was like, you're El Fudge? What the hell are you doing in my house right now? And then I, yeah, I was like, I have your records this is so weird. What is going on? I had no idea that any of this was happening. And we went to breakfast at the the pancake house. And uh, they told me the whole story about what had happened. We went right to my friend's studio that afternoon and wrote and recorded a song together. I met Vinny Paz from Jedi Mind Tricks at an open mic night in Philadelphia and told him that we had a mutual friend because Fudge had told me stories about partying with Vinny. I was a fan of their records and I wanted to meet him and it occurred to me that collaborating with and networking with other artists was a really viable means to get a rap career off the ground. I figured that out after the El Fudge thing. And so I just went there and dropped his name and Vinny was like, I love El Fudge, that's my buddy. And we ended up spending the whole night drinking beer out of paper bags in Rittenhouse Square in Philly. <laughs> and I moved to Philadelphia like a month after I met Vinny so that I could get closer to him and make friends. And um, That is the most surreal lucky break. I've yeah, it's really weird. This is, this is the weirdest part of the story. So Fudge <laughs> told me when he guest appeared on that song for me that... Um, he was going to give me the contact information for three different distribution companies and that I should contact them, tell them I had a song with him and two other songs that they could sell as a raucous-like single um, and that I was looking for a pressing and distribution deal for 12-inch final. He gave me their information and all three companies offered me a deal, but each of them had contracts that they mailed to me. I had never signed a record contract before. I didn't know how to read it or what any of the terms meant in it. It was in lawyer speak, and at the time I was way too green to have deciphered one of these things on my own. I couldn't find a lawyer that would do an entertainment contract pro bono, and so for six, eight months, Vinny and I were hanging out together, and he was talking to me occasionally about this 12-inch record I was trying to find a deal for and how I couldn't decipher the contracts. 
one night he says to me, show me the record. And I didn't want to show it to him because I didn't want him to think that I was only being friends with him because I wanted to get onto Jedi Mindtrick's record label. I thought that was a little bit too direct, a social climbing move. And so instead, I just, I stayed friends with him. I hung out with him almost every day. And we would just freestyle together and uh, go to open mic nights and just blow people's minds and then leave and then get drunk on 40s and paper bags. (laughs) And um, so this one night he says, show me the record, man. Maybe I'll put it out on Super Regular, which at the time was Jedi Mind Tricks record label. So I put this CD on, and I mean, at the time, like, nobody even really had CD burners, like, very few people. So I had, like, mm. four or five copies of this thing that the, the few friends I had who were super techie nerds that had a CD burner made for me, and they took a webcam pic of me putting up an L sign <laughs> with my hand, and um, in Comic Sans wrote Lewis Logic and all oh, lowercase. No. Wow. Yeah. Oh, wait, I'll, I'll show this to you. You guys can't see this at home, but I'm sure this is a Googleable thing um anyway i ended up very well be a gallery pick if i like it (laughs) yeah i ended up pressing play on this record oh man i'm gonna have to email it to you i I forgot i just dumped a bunch of pictures off my phone okay i'll I'll email it to you so um i hit play on the record and um first song comes on and Vinny's like and he starts saying the words to it and i was like what the and you know, halfway through the song, he's rapping all the lyrics to it. And I was like, stop. I was like, what is going on right now? <laughs> and he was like, I know this. I know this record. And I was like, you had, that's impossible. It's not <laughs> out. I don't understand how you could know this. And what had happened was the open mic night that I would go to um, at Bobito Garcia's record store, um, Footwork. He had one in New York, one in Philadelphia. They're both closed down now. Um, they would have... Uh, it was either the first or the last Sunday of every month, an open mic night, and then a featured act that headlined, and that's where I met Vinny. I would go there to learn how to perform in front of people, how to, how to rap on stage on a mic. I, one night I even got to play, um, I got to rap while Quest Love drummed and Black Thought like, shared the mic with me. It wow. was, yeah, it was a really wild mm-hmm. night. And that was like super early in my career. It was very scary. Um, anyway... There was this other kid that used to go to that open mic night that called himself Loose Leaf. Um, Vinny called him Sean the Jew because he's a fucking weirdo and an anti-Semite. And um, Sean the Jew and I became really good friends. And I gave him a cassette tape copy that, <laughs> I, uh, yeah, that I made <laughs> off my CD. And he liked it so much, he gave it to someone he went to high school with who turned out to be Stoop from Jedi Mind Tricks, the producer. Oh, wow. <laughs> and Stoop didn't like it. So he put scotch tape over the holes and recorded over it. And he put beats on it for Vinny to write to for the Jedi Mind Tricks album, Violent by Design. But he didn't realize he recorded over the opposite side of where my three songs were. <laughs> oh, so he gives the tape to Vinny. Vinny's driving around in his car listening to beats to write for for the Violent by Design album and then the tape would flip over and there were these three songs by, by some someone guy he doesn't know he didn't know that had a song with El Fudge on it <laughs> oh god and so Whoa. I'm like That's... what it, it took forever to put together how this happened and by the time we finally extracted all the elements of the story he was like dude you have to put this record out with me and I was like, I can't do the contract thing though. Like, I don't know. 
I don't have a lawyer or anything. And he was like, we're not going to do a contract. We will do this on a handshake. I will recoup the expenses for the album and then we will split the profit 50-50. And I said, okay, let's do it. And to this day, the two 12-inch singles that I put out with Jedi Monitrix label, Super Regular, are the only records I've ever gotten back-end royalty money for. Wow. It's crazy. Yeah, well, that was... That's- that's it's always a big I, advance up front and then they tell you you're in the red forever yeah this was supposed that to be was, an interview that, I didn't expect the best bar story ever that was that great was, that is the definition of serendipity right there yeah, yeah. That, that's, that's how my record career story started right there Vinny when I started writing the second single um he told me I needed to get beats and I should start working toward making an album um this kid who did scratches on my first record um JJ Brown I had been introduced to him when I was working at the Gap when I was in college. Mm-hmm. My manager, Lucky, um, this Greek kid named Triantophil, which actually means Lucky, um, introduced me to JJ because they were both DJs for the local DJ company at Penn State University. Lucky was a house DJ, um, and JJ was a hip-hop DJ. And so uh, Lucky was like, hey, man, you rap. There's this kid in our DJ company that you should meet. His name's JJ. He, he does hip-hop. He makes beats and stuff. He brings JJ into the gap, and immediately we look each other up and down and decide that we didn't like each other. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't see him again for like, I don't know, a year. The next time I saw him, I was recording songs with El Fudge, uh, with these other producer kids, and I didn't know that JJ's aunt actually gave those kids the money to put their studio together because his aunt is a a filthy, rich fashion executive. Oh, wow. Um, And so they were kind of bullying JJ and they wouldn't let him show his production to anybody. Um, But neither of them was good at scratches and JJ was. So we needed scratches for one of the songs that were on that three-song single with El Fudge and they called JJ in to do it. After the session was over, I was like, wow, you're that kid that my manager at The Gap introduced me to. This is so funny, man. How are you? How you been? And he was like, man, I can't believe you can rap like this. I, I didn't think you'd be any good. I gave you a quick look and just decided that guy looks too soft to be a good rapper. And I was like, that's funny because I gave you a quick look and I was like, you look like a giant baby. There's no way you could be a good producer. Um, and so we ended up really hitting it off. And then those other two kids got really annoyed by that. And JJ tried to play me one of his beats while we were at that session. And it was amazing. And I was like, wow, this is so good. And they were like, yeah, yeah, we're, we're not using that one. And they threw it away in front of him while he was standing there. And JJ was like, wait, you deleted it. It was such a sad situation. They had this weird, abusive relationship. And so I didn't end up making anything with him at that time, other than the scratches on my first single. Fast forward a year from that time, Vinny's telling me I need more beats. Um, I find out from a mutual friend, because I had graduated a couple of years earlier than JJ, I'm a little older than him, um, that JJ had taken over the studio on his own and moved it all to his place and that he was producing and he had a, a whole new beat CD of stuff. He mails me a beat CD because you couldn't even do that by email back then. So um, I'm going through the beats with Vinny and I was like, I don't like any of these. And JJ used to use just looped break beats. He didn't separate the parts the way producers like Premiere and Pete Rock did. And so I, I thought his beat sounded really antiquated and like late 80s sounding. And I was like, man, I don't like any of this stuff. Like I need some DJ Premier, some Pete Rock sound and stuff. And Vinny was like, wait, wait, play that last one back. 
this one's really good. And I was like, yeah, but it still has the breakbeat thing. And he was like, yeah, but just get him to change the drums. Listen to the sample and stuff. This is good. And I was like, yeah, maybe you're right. So I hit JJ up and I told him I wanted to use that beat, but I wanted to have a session with him in person to discuss arrangement. I described for him how I wanted him to change the drums. And he was like, wow, I never really thought of separating the pieces like that. I'm going to give it a try. I came back like a week later and he had reprogrammed the whole thing to sound the same way like Pete Rock, RZA, guys like that made their beats. And I was like, wow, this is awesome. And that beat became the, the beat for this song, Factotum, which to this day is one of my most popular songs. Um, while I was writing it, I was trying to write to it. The first verse I wrote had a lot of beer and drinking references in it. And Vinny used to be a real big bookworm. And he was trying to push me to read more because he told me it would really help me with my rhymes. And so he got me into reading Charles Bukowski. And he was like, let's call this song Factotum after the Bukowski novel. And I was like, perfect. I'm way into it, man. I love it. And we would drink together so often and whatever. And I, I would get like way more drunk than Vinny because he's just a, a bigger dude than me. Like he's, he's, you know, a heftier gent. Um, so if I tried to keep up with him drinking-wise, I would end up way more drunk. And he started referring to me as the drunken dragon because he said that my whole personality changed, you know, after having as many 40s as he would have in a given night. And the name just really stuck with me. And I just remember the first, like, five, six years of my career, my mom hated it. Like people would call me and they'd want to interview me or whatever and then the article would come out and I'd be like, Mom, this new magazine just did an interview with me and whatever. Like it came in the mail today and I'd show it to her and it'd be like, The Drunken Dragon. It was like the bane of my parental relationship and my career for the first seven years, basically that I was making records. But that's how it all happened. It was Vinnie Paz's nickname for me. There you go, because John. Because I, I couldn't hold the my Drunken liquor. Dragon. No. <laughs> uh no, so I've, I've written Jazz '88 like parodies uh, because they have interviews on Jazz '88 a lot about you know jazz musicians who who look back and have all these fascinating stories about their early career and whatnot, and somehow they always like meander themselves into like another incarnation, and even those parodies don't quite live up to how intensely detailed that story was. Yeah, thanks, man. <laughs> this is like an episode of This American Life. It's, that's not exactly how my interviews usually go. I'm typically super uncooperative, and I never answer the questions. I just take them to other places. But it's entertaining and funny. For some real reason, I'm in like a very uh, career introspective mood right now. And I think it's because we just dissected an album I like so much. Well, and also, <laughs> like, I li like speaking to you taking stories in funny and interesting places, it's one of the things I like about your live show so much, is that you don't just rap. And you could just do that, and you'd be very entertaining. But you want to interact with the crowd, and you crack jokes, and you pick on yourself, you pick on people in the crowd, you you find a way to bring people in. And I think that's that's a really great skill. It's why I like the nerdcore rappers, and why I think you fit so well with Adam Warrock and Schaefer the Dark Lord and Michael Kill when you and Tribe One when you performed all of that with them the first time I saw you. Because even though not all of your music is referencing specifically nerdy things. Your mentality and how you dissect things is of an intelligence that a lot of the nerdcore rappers do. Thanks, man. I mean, I am a very nerdy guy. It's, yeah. It's just um, I don't participate in most of the things that people lump nerdcore culture into. Right. Um, I do love sci-fi and fantasy 
immensely. Um, it's one of my favorite genres for film, but I don't, I don't read comics. I don't play video games. I don't, um, I don't look like a nerd on the surface, you know. So it's it's weird exactly when I play. Where I'm at. I, I sympathize with that. It's like they're separate interests, but they don't always you know, cross over into the, yeah. the music. Yeah. When I play nerdcore shows, sometimes I feel a little bad about it because I feel like I come out on the stage and none of my songs are about common nerdcore themes or yeah. anything like that, yeah. and I'm this super heavily tattooed, thin, tall black guy, <laughs> and I feel like they're looking at me and they're like, "Why are you here at a nerdcore show? You were the furthest thing from nerdy. You probably." have threesomes every night or something <laughs> which is not untrue <laughs> I, no I, I I'm not really a nerd in the nerd core sense right. but I am a nerd in the I'm I'm definitely an intellectual and but, but that comes out in your performance style and I think that's why you mesh so well at that show and why I think you can play both kinds of shows whether it's straight hip hop or the nerd core shows is because it's becoming more and more less about nerd themes and more about a certain lifestyle and just the way you carry yourself on stage and the way you interact with the fans. Well, I will be the first to att- well, actually, I guess uh, technically now the second to attack the notion that uh, nerdcore has to be some kind of predefined set. Of it doesn't, traits. but it doesn't. And and really, the fact that it even exists at all, the fact that it's it's sort of this thing lumped into a box, you know, that well, you but see, designate nerdcore. But it's, see, it's, it's curious to me. Nerdcore is a style of rapping, not necessarily a content of rapping, is what I'm saying. And he fits the style that a lot of those rappers, they come out on stage, they're very open. A lot of those records are personal. Like I, a lot of Adam Warrock's tracks, a lot of Schaefer's tracks are personal. And that's why I think you fit so well at that show too. And why you sound so great on Solieri with, with Front and and, and I'm and really excited and happy that I get to participate in the nerdcore scene. And I'm glad that it exists as a little subworld of rap music because, uh, and, and all music genres, there's so many different... Um, nerdcore acts um, they're all they're not obviously not all hip hop um, because it's such a supportive world and and it's a really warm and safe environment for people who have felt persecuted because they are nerds or nerdy <laughs> in some way um, and I love that about that scene and I think that's one of the reasons why people are so supportive when the, when a nerdcore event happens everybody comes dude it's crazy because they're like yes something for us Something for us that's aside from the popular people culture of big muscles and beauty and whatever. And and I love that about the nerdcore world. And I'm, I'm really happy and honored that they've invited me in there. I sometimes feel like I don't belong there and it's unfair that I get to participate. But I'm really grateful that they let me. And, and that they have noticed that even though I might not look like a nerd and I don't have the... Uh, the uh, common interests of somebody who's a part of the nerdcore community i am a nerd for sure totally and, and if you stick me in a room full of like cool guy urban black dudes you know who have fancy cars and go to bottle service clubs i'm such a dork i don't fit in with those guys at all they will yeah. mock me to tears it's it's all a measure in comparative <laughs> yeah, kind yeah. Of, uh, and so to that end, I, maybe I do really belong there in some way. It's just I've never really been invited into it before having done this tour with Mega Ram, um, Raheem, who I became very good friends with, um, and then Tribe One and Michael Kill, who um, I didn't even know at first were 
nerdcore artists. Yeah, because they have. Well, also they're they don't they're another set of rappers who they rap about nerdy things, but they also rap about they just rap. Stuff. Yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. I love those guys. They're great. Miles I mean, Miles is amazing. God, that kid's good. Yeah, uh, Tribe One is a rapper that I had only heard featured on the songs, and then at the same show that I just you know I had met Lewis for the first time, I had heard Tribe One only featured on other songs. And then he does his set, and it's like that 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 uh, Marvel song I played for you, where he just raps a list of alphabetical Marvel characters, and then gets faster, faster, faster. Dude, he's awesome. He just he 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 exudes a skill that's mind blowing. Uh, no, I can't rap as well as that guy. Oh like, stop! No, I'm sh- that's not a joke. <laughs> I'm dead serious. On a mechanical level, I cannot outrap Drive One, and I'm comfortable with that. You know, we each have our different strengths or whatever. You know. Well, speaking of strengths, and this is where I want to digress just a little bit, really quickly, because we're short on time. But you um, also are a one-man show, and that's something else to uh, to really promote. Granted, there's a lot, of course, within the nerdcore scene, there's a lot of one-man shows. But amongst rappers, it, it normally falls between like you know someone who helps out with the backbeats and then someone who writes the lyrics and everything. And I'm very impressed by the fact that you're able to sort of swing it all together because you have this this vision that you're able to just sort of get out there and it's all your own. That's something that I don't find too much these days. That so. was a, a long thing in the making. Um, and and I, I guess it, it kind of is going to lead us into one of the other questions you wanted to ask me about, Matt. Um, my seven-year absence. Yeah. Um, oh, yes. And so you guys already know that I grew up on singer-songwriters, classic rock, punk rock, metal. Um, very rock-influenced background. I got a lot of the Eminem comparisons from my early rap records and um this kid that i made friends with in philly who went to RISD um told me he's like the first hipster i ever met you sound too much like eminem you gotta stop listening to stuff that you like especially rap stuff what else do you listen to and i told him about my background and he was like dig out your classic rock records put your rap records away man everybody's stuff references other stuff that they like or whatever but it's all about how well you hide your references like you sound like the people that you like so why don't you draw your inspiration from things outside of your own medium that's what they teach us to do in art school and i was like wow i never even thought of that that is a shamelessly brilliant piece of advice it's how yeah. well you it's all about how well you hide your your, your references. references yeah that's yeah. brilliant and so i i ended up getting really into that stuff and eventually just using it as a an inspiration for the rap records I was writing wasn't enough and I had pretty much stopped listening to rap records altogether by 2002 maybe 2001 and um, by 2005 I was so enamored with the idea of learning to play an instrument and to figure out the mysterious magic behind how these rock records I love so much are made because I knew everything about how you made a rap record I would listen to even the best rap records that would come out and I could only really enjoy them on a clinical level like oh this is mixed really well I can't even hear this guy's punch-ins and his verses (laughs) Um, but rock records were still magic to me I could not figure out for the life of me how they would go from silence to these super elaborate songs with all this instrumentation and whatever and my then girlfriend bought me piano lessons for my 31st birthday and i was so afraid to take them (laughs) that i didn't do it for a year almost a year and a half and um, by the time i took my first piano lesson i was almost 33 and she was smart she interviewed three different teachers and she hired the one 
that was a 26 year old Japanese girl with freckles she was so pretty (laughs) and I instantly had a crush on her when she opened the door and it made me try so much harder (laughs) for the first year or two that I was taking piano lessons I was playing four or five hours a day and just studying very intensely and I learned quickly and I ended up becoming capable I'm still a crappy piano player but to a lay person it looks like I know how to play piano. Starting at, at, at 31, that's pretty outstanding. Thank that's you. I can read sheet music. I understand music theory. Um, I, I write parts for other instruments for the records that I make now. Um, and when I have session players come in, I stick a music stand in their face and a notation for them. You know, <laughs> and you can speak then, their language. Yes. Um, I played f- piano for 15 years. I still am self-conscious about like certain elements of it. It's uh, it's a very it's a very slow to acquire a skill, but oh, it's, yeah. it never ever stops providing things for you to learn. There's always oh no no, it's so like, yeah. complicated that that world is so deep you can drown in it, yeah. which is cool. It's exciting to be swimming around in that place. Yeah. And after you know six seven years of feeling a little bit lost in rap records and like I didn't know if I wanted to make one again. Um, and I had been studying piano at that point for like five years. I decided to try my hand at writing some indie pop songs. Um, I had been using piano primarily to reinterpret my hip-hop studio recordings and play them live while I rapped because I wanted to become known as the first guy in the world who could rap and play piano at the same time. And back then, you couldn't find anything about a, a dude who did that. All the first YouTube videos that you find that are like that are mine. Um, and I even have a story... A friend of mine was a nanny for the Smiths, meaning Will Smith and uh, Jada Pinkett Smith. Oh, really? And, yeah, she took care of that terrible acting little brat um, <laughs> of, of Will Smith's. Anyway, uh, she told me that one day Will Smith had Heavy D, rest in peace, Heavy D, over his place. Um, he had a studio in his, in his home, um, and they were listening to songs on YouTube. And she heard Heavy D saying to Will Smith hey, you got to check this video out. It's this kid from Brooklyn, and he raps and plays piano at the same time. (laughs) And he does a cover of Bismarck's Just a Friend, where he actually plays the piano parts while he raps the verses. And my friend Jenna walked into the room, and Will Smith and Heavy D were watching video clips of me covering Just a Friend. Oh, wow. Wow. (laughs) It's really awesome. That's... Um, Well, anyway, after... Chock full of serendipity. Like five years of making... um, my show into this one-man show experience where I was rapping, I was singing, I was playing piano and reinterpreting my rap songs that way and dancing and doing a little bit of stand-up stuff between the songs. Um, I decided that since I, I had kind of lost my taste for making rap records and I was dissatisfied with the direction of most people's rap records at the time, that I was going to try making an indie rock record. And I made maybe four or five songs and showed them to Chesky Ramos, the founder, frontman of Fake Four Inc., who is also a rapper, singer, songwriter, but with guitar. Um, and he really liked the direction that I was going in and, and encouraged me and said, these are really good indie pop songs, man. And I thought nobody would like them. I was afraid to play them for people. Um, we were on a tour together in the UK, and I showed him a song that I actually wrote about him. Um, Chesky was born with four fingers on his right hand, but he doesn't have a, a stub. He has a cartoon hand, and it's perfect. It's amazing, actually. <laughs> um, that I probably do have a picture of on my phone, and I should show that to you. Um, he, uh, 
is an amazing guitarist who can play in more or less any style you know jazz classical pop flamenco like anything he's really really good he's a fully realized version of what i've spent the last seven eight years trying to become with piano but on guitar he also plays violin drums um little piano like he's incredible he's the most musically capable and fluent rapper i've ever heard of and i know a lot of rappers (laughs) um i wrote this song called some of its parts um and it was a play on words. It was spelled like some S-O-M-E. Um, and the song seemed like, it was an allegory, it seemed like it was about a breakup and being okay without the person. But it was actually about Chesky's missing finger and how he never needed it. So I showed him that as the final of five songs I wrote in an indie pop style while we were in this hotel room in Plymouth, in the UK on tour, opening for Akil from Jurassic 5. And uh, he loved the song. And then I told him it was about him, and he was like, what? And he re-listened to it, and he was like, wow. He was like, dude, do you want to put this out? I want to put this out on Fake 4. And he actually signed me to Fake 4 for an indie rock record, not a Lewis Logic rap record. Wow. We toured together for two years, and over the course of that time period, I fell back in love with making rap records, and my seven-year crisis of faith and exploration and... um, study into music theory and piano ended up becoming really useful to me because I decided to write another Lewis Logic record and after a weird producer fallout that I had with this kid Hot Sugar who was supposed to produce my my next Lewis Logic hip-hop project I decided there is no reason why I shouldn't produce my own record I know more about music than most guys who produce rap beats because most of them don't know anything about conventional western music and and how it's done um you know they they just learn by taste and by ear and by you know sampling old records and using beat machines and things like that lots of people who got into the production studio and are like really like big shots in the production studio these days it's usually not based off um off of like classically trained it's it's just kind of experience as you go so and so i totally you know embrace your confidence yeah i age. there's no reason why i shouldn't produce for myself the only thing keeping me from doing it is that i don't know how to push the buttons and click the things in a software if i can learn how to play piano at 32 that's the software exactly push the button if if i could learn how to play piano (laughs) at 32 33 years old i could learn how to do that you know, that seems like so much less of a mountain to climb. And so I I had toyed around with it by making those indie pop songs. Um, and I didn't have a producer, but Fake 4 was expecting me to turn in a Lewis Logic record. So I didn't tell Chesky that um, I had no producer and no way to, to finish the, the album that I had started with this Hot Sugar Kid. He bought me a ticket to go to Denmark and work with my surf rock Balkan band and have them... <laughs> remix the songs I made with this hot sugar kid but my bandmate Laos he has all these weird health problems and and his dad died and so he couldn't work on the record with me and I was I was stuck I had nothing and so I just decided I'm the producer now I gotta at least try um and so I made a beat and I thought it was really good it took me like two weeks to make it but I thought it was really good but I wasn't sure, so I called up my friend Jay Zone and I called up my friend Willie Green and I asked them if they would meet up with me and I could play them the first beat I ever made. And when I showed it to them, they were both like, "This is your first beat 
Jesus. <laughs> this is amazing, dude. You nice, should make right? a song out of this. You and told I, them two weeks, though, which, right? Which, which, I have to ask. Oh, I admitted that, sure. Yeah. It was Bet the Farm. Bet the Farm, which is one of my favorite songs on the record. See, that's Thank the you. other secret that, you're, that your friend didn't tell you. Hide your references and also hide how long it takes you to do stuff. People <laughs> will always just swoon. Well, it took me two weeks to make the Bet the Farm beat, and I spent so much time with it that when Jay Zone and Willie Green were like, dude, write a song to this. You're ready. Be a producer. And I was like, I just don't even know what to say, guys. Thank you. Um, this is definitely not where I thought studying piano and music theory was going to take me. It's It was not my intention. I only wanted to be the guy who was known for being able to play piano and rap. Um, I think that's a very heartwarming it, a thirty-something uh, coming-of-age tale. Yeah, it's pretty weird. So many people, you know, there there are books out there who say if you don't, you know, get this stuff down by your twenties, you're done, you're screwed. And totally. That's, that's that is, uh, what do you call it? Validating to hear. I I owe that all to a fan that I met. Uh, he was fifteen years old. His name is Nick Janopoulos. George Nicholas Janopoulos. He's a composer in L.A. now. Mm-hmm. When I met him, he didn't play any instruments. <clears throat> Over the course of fifteen to eighteen, he and I became close friends through the internet talked on the phone a bunch he helped me trace leaks of my cinematic album before it came out and shut them down um he'd come to the rocksteady celebrations every year in new york with his mom and she would let him go out for lunch with me and hang out and we just got tighter and tighter over the years and by the time he was 18 he came down to new york and told me he had a big surprise for me that he wanted to spend the night at my place and hang out but he needed me to answer him about two days of availability you know, maybe a month out from the weekend that he was talking about by six in the morning. And I was like, what the? So I said yes. The night before um, what ended up actually happening, he shows up and he brings this big electronic piano into my house. And I was like, what the hell is that? And he was like, this is part of the surprise. He tells me that after knowing me for a few years and getting a little bit of an inside look into the music business, he decided he knows what he wants to do with himself when he goes to college. He wants to be a musician and he's going to play piano. And I was like, wait, do you play piano? And he was like, no. And I was like, dude, you can't do that. You're 18. You don't play piano at 18. You play piano at eight. Like That's not going to work. And he's like, no, no, I already started. I'm pretty good already. And he sits down. I mean, he couldn't even play simple tryout chords with like a quarter note arrangement um, without screwing up. Like he was bad. And I was like, this is not going to work, dude. Next morning, he wakes me up. I'm really hungover. I took him out to karaoke, and back then they didn't card at the bars. I got him <laughs> totally wasted. Um, he wakes me up at like 11 in the morning. He's like, you got to get out of bed. It's the surprise. And I was like, what are you talking about? I thought that was the surprise. I was really moved that you decided to be a musician, man. I'm going back to bed. He's like, get up, get up. We got to go. Shoves me into the car. It's pouring rain. We drive from Queens, where I lived at the time, through Manhattan, through the Lincoln Tunnel into New Jersey, and I was like, why are you taking me to New Jersey? I hate New Jersey. He gets off at the Rutherford Sports Complex, and I was like, are we going to, like, a game or something? You do know I don't like sports. I'm looking at the marquee, and it's flipping. It's like, the boss is back. One day only. And I was like, oh, my God, this kid idiot bought me tickets to a Bruce Springsteen concert. He's a sweet kid, but God. Like, that's... No. (laughs) The marquee flips again, and it's like one day only, field day festival, headlining, Radiohead. I was like, oh my god. I started crying. He bought me Radiohead tickets. Wow. Um, and didn't, yeah, he surprised me. And at the time, they were my favorite band. Um, and for many years. Uh, that kid, two years later after this event, 
um, I went to visit him in Syracuse. I was on tour, and I, I visited him at his mom's little condo. She was away on vacation, and I crashed there for the night with him. She kept the piano there for him to rehearse with. He was reading, sight-reading sheet music and playing, you know, like intermediate-level like Brahm pieces and stuff. And I was like, this is... I still can't sight-read. <laughs> it's yeah. like my biggest challenge. Dude, I, I was blown away. Yeah. And I had these piano lessons that had been bought for me, and I didn't want to take them. And I, he inspired me. He made me see that you could do that. That's awesome. And that's the whole reason why I learned. And so nice. when Willie and Jay Zone told me to write something to the Bet the Farm beat, because I had spent two weeks making it, I was so sick of it. I was like, I can't write something to this. I have no idea what to do with it now. I've listened to this thing nonstop for two weeks. I guess I'll just start another beat. So I started making the beat for what became the jokes on you. Um, and I was so fired up about the subject of my disdain for pop culture worship and reality TV that the song just kind of spewed out of me lyrically. And that ended up being the first song I finished writing for the album, even though it was the second beat that I made. I didn't actually finish writing the Bet the Farm song till after I wrote two more um, because I was so sick of the beat. <laughs> and I got faster. It was taking me, on average, like four or five days to make a beat. Um, I didn't tell Chesky that I hadn't found another producer that I was producing for myself because my agreement with him for my indie pop record on Fake 4 was... These songs are great, but they're still demo quality. You need a producer to help you flesh them out and make them complete. If your your now label mate, Gregory Pepper, who is a, an amazing singer-songwriter who plays piano and guitar and bass from uh, Guelph, Ontario, um, if he agrees to produce your indie pop record, I will put this out on Fake 4. And I was like, I can't show Gregory Pepper my songs. He's not going to like them. I'm too embarrassed because I love this kid's records. He made me send him the one about his missing finger. Pepper loved the song. By the next day, he wrote back and was like, I will produce your record. I think it's really cool that you've gone in this direction. I was a fan of your rap records. Um, I was totally flattered, and I couldn't believe that this was all happening. But in my mind still, I didn't have the skill set to fully flesh out songs as a producer. So if I told Chesky I was taking over the production of the record, he would panic <laughs> and be like, no, 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 we'll pay for a producer. Who do you want? So I decided to just make like five songs, put it out for free, and see if people liked it. Chesky and I were getting ready to go on another tour together, and I wanted to have all five of them ready before we left for the tour, and then just release them on Bandcamp for free. I pick him up from Grand Central Station the night before the tour. He came in from New Haven, Connecticut, and on the drive back, I tell him, I got something to show you. And he was like, what is it? is it? Is it new songs? Songs for your record? And I was like, maybe. And he was like, all right, let, let me hear something. And I played Bet the Farm for him. And by the end of the song, he was like, Jesus, who made this? And I was like, I did. And he was like, you made this? This is insane, dude. This is the best music you've ever made. This, this is the Lewis Logic record I want to put out on Fake 4. 
not the Hot Sugar re- record, not the Sport Kills Band record, remixing those songs. This. It's that sort of a stylistic coming to age. Yeah, yeah. And well, that's, that's the other thing. I mean, about like learning an instrument is it's not just about learning the instrument, mastering it, or or even just being able to you know manage the instrument. It's also about creating a style from that instrument. That's probably really probably the most challenging part for some totally. people because people stay within grooves, you know, based on what they were taught or or even what their influences are. Again, the whole hiding your influence thing. People tend to go back to the same things and sometimes can't escape that. And then one day, there's that aha moment where you discover what your style is and it's like, you run down the check mark that there's nothing else quite like this out in the world. And I, yeah. I feel like you had that it's moment. It's such a bizarre amalgamation of yeah. influences you know, that, that all come from the weird little journey that I made to get to where I am now. And so... You know, you hear the singing choruses on the Look on the Blight Side album, and they're very Elliot Smithy. They're very Beatles-ish in their arrangements. I use a lot of counter melody stuff, tricks that I learned from Elliot Smith and from the Beatles. I love her, um, uh, especially middle period, like Elliot Smith. Yeah, oh, no, I actually kind of, I, I think I can even hear that on some of your work. Yeah, I and I think I, I hear that within the piano work itself. T- totally, totally, yeah. and and there's a lot of like baroque piano stuff in it too because. That was the last yeah. stuff that I learned when I was taking piano lessons. We'll talk about full circle because that actually is almost what we were talking about in today's review. In the, the borrowing from a style that was borrowing from a style, like for instance, the late sixties music that went back to the Baroque. I think I recall that in uh, Elliot Smith's Roman Candle, there was quite a bit of Baroque stuff in that oh, yeah. song itself. So you know, if you if you do that style of a style that it's sort of that um that stacking your influences game it's pretty effective way to hide influences totally because that's that's fusion it's just like when you're passing messages along that game where the game of telephone yeah by the time they get to the end it's it's very different and so it became my own weird little thing and when it all come to fruition i discovered that chesky was right and that you could actually be a rapper and singer-songwriter, and you didn't have to make separate projects for those records. You could be all of those things in one package. Stop thinking of yourself as Lewis Logic on these records, as Spork Kills on these ones, and my indie rock band name, Kiss Her Stupid, on these records. They're all just Lewis Dorley songs. And that's how I made the Look on the Blight Side album, and I ended up here. That's, yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> that's how you came to tell your tale. It, 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 truthfully though, I mean, you can ask these guys. From that first time I saw you, I came back raving about your stuff, but mostly because you weren't just rapping. You weren't. I, I literally said, this guy, he plays piano during the choruses and sings, and then raps in front of the keyboard and gets in your face and gets interacts and like that was so brilliant to me. And now that I've heard some of your older stuff and seen you sing your older stuff. The newer stuff really feels like you. Yeah. Because, you know, your older stuff when you're just rapping is great and I love it, but you feel so much in your own skin when you're singing the stuff on Look on the Blight Side Thank because you, it, it you, you you're one man show and that and I really love that about about your stuff. Yeah, I mean this record and where I have arrived, it's it's everything that I learned all in one place at the same time. You know, I don't think a lot of people really make records like that, necessarily. Especially if you grew up playing your instrument and stuff like that, and you yeah. you've been able to experiment as much as you want. And you know many different styles or whatever. Who knows what you're going to get out of somebody who's that experienced? You know, when they make a record, I kind of used every trick that I know. 
like on this new record. I feel like that takes a very self-conscious mind, um, which is a good thing in this instance, because if you're self-conscious, you're aware of what you can do, and you're aware of when you're when you're repetitive. You're aware of all these things that um, that could potentially hurt you, I guess, in the game, you know. But if you're aware of them as you go through, then you're you're you keep a step ahead of yourself in a way. Yeah. And that that creates an amalgamation project. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's been the most rewarding experience of my career to have befriended Chesky and been inspired to start making rap records again and then to have used my kooky journey of music study and exploration to have arrived in the place where I'm making a record now for the first time in my career that is totally me. And I don't just mean because I did everything on it. I mean, it speaks to everything that I am about. Yeah. You know, these are the most Lewis records that I have ever made. And so it's very strange for me when I talk to people who are fans of my old records, like really diehard fans of it, and they're having to get acclimated to the new record. Yeah. And they're like, it's different from your old stuff. I like it, but it's different. And I'm like, what you don't know is those things were This a real is more me than me. me. Yeah. yeah. This, this than is, what you thought was me. This is the most Lewis record of anything that I have ever made. Cheers. Also, um, thank you for providing me with uh, an immense amount of material for expanding these parodies on the uh, exploration of serendipity within uh, studio stories and all that stuff. That's 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 great My stuff. Pleasure. That's really great. That stuff. was that was great stories. Th- thank you for yeah, digging you. deep and sharing with us. I was very quiet because I just wanted to listen, man. Those ah, were some kick-ass stories. Thank you. Yeah, uh, I've, that's I've got a hell of a journey. I'm gonna I, write a book one day about my weird music career and my growing up in this bizarre neighborhood that I did. We need a new coming age tale on the market. I would read I think. it. I would. I would Novel, definitely read it because it sounds like you've got a lot to say. Yeah, yeah. I, I've definitely done a lot of really kooky things with my life experience and my music career, and I, I think it will make an interesting story. I don't. I, you know, I don't profess to have the most interesting story, but it's, it's kooky. It's it's a little different than, <laughs> your garden variety path. Um, well, speaking bef- of things that are kooky, we have our spam mail today. Okay. <laughs> Average in turn sends provides will be the frequent systems that offer the opportunity for one. That's deep. And who is that by? R Y W Y V I O H Q T T G. Can you read that again? I'm completely perplexed by that. <clears throat> Average in turn sends provides will be the frequent systems that offer the opportunity for one. Wow. That's some Yoda speak right yeah, there. Yeah, no, that's pretty no good. kidding. I, I'm a. Uh... You feel like it was really hammering it home with that sends provides. Dude, yeah. I'm nonplussed right now. <laughs> nonplussed. I like that. Um, before before we wrap up, I just want to thank you again, Lewis, for being a guest. As a fan, it's really big to me, and and, and also thank you so much. It's just it's been a lot of fun, and um, uh, we you've been great. <laughs> you've been great, man. Since since, um, since we didn't have a chance for you to perform live on the show this time around, we would like for you to choose a song for us to throw on at the end for our fans. Yeah, yeah. I would suggest they don't make them like they used to. And the reason I would choose that song is I think that um, in terms of the demonstration of what I have learned about music theory and playing piano and writing arrangement and singing it's it's probably the most all-out assault on the record of everything that I'm capable of, all in one place. And, and it also has some extra instrumentation on it. I co-wrote parts for trombone and clarinet 
on that song. Um, so this is the amalgamation Lewis Logic song on the amalgamation Lewis Logic record. Yes, yes. Wow. This this song cool. I think is is most indicative of that whole story. All right, um, John. Before we wrap up completely, do you want to tell us what we're going to be doing next week? It's your pick. <laughs> I found something nice. Uh, we're going into Glitch Electronica. Um, Glitch, which is a subset of Electronic, which it pr- proliferates bugs, scratches, skips, distortion, just general computer foul-ups in the music itself. The album is Love, Death, Immortality by The Glitch Mob. Came okay. out last February, and I feel I, like Hops mentioned Glitch I Mob. I think he did. I think, I think so. that's where I got it from because oh, I've boy. also been looking online to find a nice Electronica album. And this name has been just popping up everywhere for me. Oh, well, remember, Great. even though you'd think that, you know, Glitch Hop or Glitch Pop is the kind of thing that would be completely new to us, I'm pretty sure that album that Hops brought, uh, Vapor City by Machine Drum, was it had straight glitch up in it. Glitch Pop. Yeah. yeah. Or Glitch Hop. Um, this is a Glitch Electronic. Okay, well, that, we have that to look forward to next variety. week. Um, Lewis, if you'd be so kind to take us out with our uh, oh, yeah. catchphrase, the I would appreciate phrase. that. It's always good. Uh, I remember it. I don't know why I'm even looking that up. Um, so as it turns out, um, music is life, and life is good.
This is big business. It's on every kid's wish list. Every mister catches his misses. Every Nancy gets a Sid Vicious. You let the very fabric of your merry marriage stretch to its limits. And get up on your best leg with the nest egg. Then end up in debt when it's finished. You can forget all the gimmicks quicker, thinner with a sexier image. In the end, where the commitment measures the distance, all depends on what's in it. We're all synthetic provisional lovers wrapped in stuffed in styrofoam. My pops cemented his love for my mother and scratched and cut their lives in stone. And I should have known I wasn't raised inside the new school. But let's just admit it, they don't make them like they used to. Remember when a true fool, togetherness was crucial. Now everyone is too cool, they don't make them like they used to. My friend cool is a who's who. that they don't 